you know, and so today is really the completion of that, hopefully. And so the working title, which we didn't change, couldn't shorten it up any, it's uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, what it is, how it works, how it could possibly cause injury. And we're gonna try and focus everything on that as much as we can. I do wanna point out the complexity of what we're dealing with here. I think of, of, of many problems during the, the uh, pandemic. Uh, one of the biggest casualties was just modesty in admitting how much we don't know. But I really want that sinking in. I understand how much we don't know about the body, about its response, about, quite honestly, our, our marvelous natural immunity and, and how man's interventions might just screw that up. I think we need to be honest, we need to admit that. So I'm hoping we, we can talk about that complexity today in as layman terms as possible. I think that's what we were grappling with yesterday, is how, how do you turn a very complex subject that, that you do need to de delve into scientific details and use scientific terms, and how do you do it so a guy like me can understand? And I guess I'll, I'll be sort of the, the watchdog there to uh, say, hey, doctor, I, I don't understand. Can you make that a little bit more clear? Uh, so, just quick summary you know, how I got involved in this. Um, you know, it started pretty early on for my advocacy of early treatment. And I had no idea why we didn't robustly pursue that, but we simply did it. So I held hearings in May. Pierre Corey came and talked about corticosteroids. I held a hearing in November where we had Dr. McCulloch, Dr. Rich, Dr. Fareed, up against Dr. Ja. Uh, again, one in December, we brought back uh, Pierre Corey, among others, uh, talking about different repurposed drugs. And then, because of my advocacy for early treatment, I got connected to a global network of eminently qualified doctors and medical researchers who, who were expressing some concerns about a, a rush vaccine, a, a vaccine that would have the body produce what we now believe is probably its own toxin. The, the, some people will recognize that even back then or the dangers of mass vaccination in the midst of pandemic that could drive variants. We'll probably talk about that today. But certainly by March or April, because I was concerned, I thought we should have exercised far more caution as opposed to throw caution. Percent of those deaths reported worldwide occur in days zero, one, or two following the vaccine. Again, I know VAERS doesn't prove causation, but that sure got my attention. It's just amazing to me it hasn't got the attention of our, our regulators. So that's kind of how I, what brought me down this road that I got introduced to the vaccine injured and to a certain extent that the rest is, uh, is history, a very uh, widely kept secret history. Uh, but that's where we are today. So we're going to start out today uh, really describing why we're here. And it kind of starts with VAERS. And it'll start with uh, Ms. Liz Wilner who is a professional web developer with over 25 years of experience in the field. She is the designer creator of OpenVayers. Liz is also a mother of a vaccine-injured child, which was the catalyst that led her to research the vaccine adverse event reporting system, Vayers. She found the federal database antiquated and cumbersome, to say the least. So she built the OpenVayers website to make the Vayers data more accessible. So Liz, take it away. Thank you, Senator. And um, I just want to say what an honor it is to be here amongst such a distinguished group. and. Wow. 
Um, there's the vaccine adverse event reporting system that was designed to be an early warning system. It is doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing, but nobody's listening. Um, this chart shows before and after the introduction of the COVID vaccine for the U.S. Um, these are severe adverse events, uh, reports of death, hospitalizations, permanent disability, and life-threatening events. Um, per year, reports of death, 163. There's been a 4,800% increase in the last two years. For hospitalization, a 2,876% increase. For permanent disabilities, a 2,150% increase. And for life-threatening events, a 2,108% increase. These point to theirs points to problems that need investigation. When we see signals, we should be pausing and studying what's happening. We haven't done that, and it's extremely disappointing to me as a citizen of the United States that that's what's occurring. Um, every life matters. This is a safety signal that is screaming with nobody paying attention, and that needs to change. Thank you. Just to confirm, what you're talking, uh, just U.S. VAERS reports, I, I was talking about global, worldwide statistics. I think the you know, obviously the reports are probably a little more, a uh, little better here in terms of the U.S., so you're focusing on those. And my information also, about 18% of the deaths reported in the U.S. on VAERS occur on day zero, one, or two, which are also indicated yeah. safety signal. So ne next we'll turn to uh, Mr. Aaron Siri who is the managing partner of Siri and Glimstead LLP and has extensive experience in a wide range of complex civil litigation matters with a focus on civil rights, class action, and complex civil litigation. Mr. Siri has a long history of practice in the area of vaccine injury and related litigation. He handled his first vaccine injury case before the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in the U.S. Federal Court of Claims in 2012, and Aaron's here to talk about the V-SAFE system. Thank you, Senator. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, yes, I'm gonna, since I have five minutes, I'm gonna talk a little quicker than normal, but hopefully everybody will I'll be able to follow along. Uh, my firm has over 20 individuals that exclusively work on vaccine-related matters. We do vaccine injury, vaccine um, exemptions, and, and vaccine policy work, and almost all that vaccine policy work is done on behalf of the Informed Consent Action Network, ICANN. The reason I tell you that is because ICANN asked us over a year and a half ago to please get the data from the V-SAFE system. V-SAFE is the CDC's premier vaccine safety system for the COVID-19 vaccine. It was exclusively designed and rolled out to assess the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. The V-SAFE system has over 10 million individuals that use the system. And what it does is it has them complete a weekly and then health check-in to uh, gather standardized information. In that way, it is better than theirs because it actually is able to calculate a rate. If 200,000 people report to VSAFE that they have myocarditis and there are 10 million people, you can figure out a 2% rate of myocarditis. Can't do that exactly with VAERS because you don't know the denominator. It also, in, in, in some ways, is better than a clinical trial. Clinical trial for the Pfizer COVID vaccine had 30,000 participants. This is 10 million participants. And just like a clinical trial, VSAFE relies on asking participants to provide information about their experience after the shot, and it does it in a standardized way. 
unlike a clinical trial, the data, though, is not then filtered through pharmaceutical companies. With vSafe, it's directly without going through that filter, so maybe it's a little bit more reliable. Okay, with that, what's in vSafe? What information did vSafe gather? First slide, please. It essentially gathered only two categories of information. First were symptoms. Um, second slide, please. Now, when you look at the symptoms, what you will see is they include fever, they include chills, uh, pain. They're the type of symptoms that the CDC says you should expect in the first week after getting a shot because they call that reactogenicity. That means the vaccine, they say, is working or having an immune reaction. And they only collect that information for a week after the shot. When you have a time after this presentation, you can take a look at them and you'll see that any data about those uh, symptoms pretty much useless to her except for actually assessing any serious safety issues. Okay. Um, and, and when you look at it, you, you'll also see what's missing. Pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis. All the issues we now know with the that the vaccine can cause are not listed there on check the box options for the users. It would have been an incredible opportunity to gather that information in a systematic way. One might say, okay, Maybe the CDC didn't know the vaccine could cause those issues in December 2020 when it rolled out V-Safe. Next slide, please. But that's not the case. In October 2020, as seen on the slide, in a presentation that the CDC gave, it listed the preliminary list of adverse events of special interest. And on that list, right there on the screen, pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis, seizures, all the issues that we are now facing, many individuals are facing from this vaccine, were right on that list. They could have put them as check the box options, but they didn't. In fact, next slide please. The v CDC itself, in designing VSAFE, created a protocol for designing it. And on that protocol, on that screen, you can see specifically listed those same exact conditions as adverse events of special interest, pre-specified medical conditions. It listed those conditions as conditions of special interest in its own design for VSAFE. But when it rolled VSAFE out, they were not there as check the box options. Okay, that takes us to the first category of information that VSAFE collects, the symptoms. Not very useful for assessing safety. Next category of information. That is the health impact. Next slide, please. Now on this slide, you can see this is what the 10 million users filled out. And this is pretty much the only other health information they gathered, that the CDC gathered. And it provided for three things. You could check if you were unable to perform daily activities, could not do work or, or go to school, or whether you needed medical care. Well, since this is the only other standardized medical information, health impact information that they gathered in VSAFE, you would expect that this is where the CDC was finally, in VSAFE, this act is in fact called VSAFE, to assess safety, would assess safety. You would imagine they would have set a threshold above which they would have said, okay, we gotta pull the plug on the shot. If medical care, if people reporting needing medical care was one in 500, maybe one in 300, maybe one in 100. Had it been some threshold, right? Well, um, let's take a look at what those numbers look like. And I, and I, and I, for, I, I forgot to mention that unlike symptoms which are collected for one week after the shot, they collected the health impact for one week and then every week for, for six weeks and then at 12, 24, and 52 weeks. Okay, 
So, next slide, please. Here it is. Here's we can see exactly what, uh, what was seen. If you look at the red little bar, you can see there's about, uh, and this is a dashboard that I can create to be able to visually represent the vSafe data. About 800,000 people reported needing medical care in the database of nine, 10 million. That's about a 7.7% of people in vSafe reported needing medical care. These were not people who came, signed up for vSafe to report medical issues. Most vSafe users signed up before they had any medical issues when they first just got the shots before they had any symptoms at all at the, at the behest of the CDC. 7.7%, that is one in 13 people, yet the CDC did not pull the shot. Most, 25% of those people needed emergency room care or uh, were hospitalized and another 48% sought urgent care. Um, also another 25% on top of that 7.7% reported being unable to work or, or go to school. Um, was the CDC transparent about this information? No. It took us a year and a half of legal battles to get it, two lawsuits in federal court, only before they had no other choice did they finally reveal it. Finally, um, during that year and a half, last point, um, during that year and a half, what were they telling the American public about what vSafe showed? They published study after study after study in which the only thing that CDC revealed to the public was effectively what the uh, medical care rate was in the first week after the shot which was like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4%, depending on the category, they say, even though it is higher when you look at the actual data. Putting aside that, a 0.34% seeking medical care in one week of shot in itself should be concerning. That is all they reveal to the public. When the reality is, next slide please, when you actually drill down into the data, and this is just one example, and, and I'll end there, Senator, I think I, and I think I kept my five minutes, I'll end right there, if you look, in week one, 0.32% of people reporting medical care. Now, these numbers are not cumulative. Look at the next week, and each week thereafter, there's actually an increasing number of people that reported needing medical care. Again, those numbers are not cumulative. And yet, that data for over a year and a half was not revealed to the public. It took a legal battle to get it, and instead, they only reported the first week number. Thank you. So again, 10 million people voluntarily signed up for VC. 7.7% had to seek medical care, and the 20-some percent was the other? Incapacity. Incapacity. Well, could, could report the, the, the other 25% either reported being unable to perform normal daily activities and or missed school work. Okay, thank you. Next, we'll turn to Mr. Edward Dowd, uh, currently a founding partner of Finance Technologies, a global macro alternative investment firm. Ed has worked on Wall Street most of his career, spanning both credit markets and equity markets, and, and Ed is... Uh, in terms of his financial background, he's looked at financial information to identify a safety signal that uh, is pretty interesting. Ed. Thank you, Senator. Honored to be here today. Uh, my story is pretty simple. Our story is pretty simple. Josh has done some work as well. Um, the bottom line, can I get the next slide, please? Um, the bottom line is we saw 2020 pre-vaccine and 2021 and 22 post-vaccine. There was a mixed shift from 2020 to 21 of excess mortality from old to young. So in 2020, it was mostly old people. We also saw um, a mixed shift in uh, disability starting to rise in May of 21. Um, the excess mortality has shifted so much so that it's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal what you see here in the charts before you. This is not my data, this is a society of actuaries. In 2021, in ages 25 through 64, the employed people of our nation covered under group life, they experienced a 40% excess mortality. 
as quoted by a CEO of an insurance company, just a 10% increase in excess mortality is a three standard deviation event or a once in a 200 year flood. So 40 is off the charts. Um, what's interesting about this is that the general overall population experienced 32% excess mortality. This group life uh, policyholder subset is much healthier in general than the overall population as done by st previous studies. They experienced mortality 30 to 40% that of the general population. So something flipped in 2021 by eight points. Go on to the next slide, please. Um, for disability, uh, this is the next data set is the US uh, Bureau, uh, US Department of Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's pretty simple here. Uh, we saw disability take off in May of 2021 above averages. Uh, on Wall Street, we follow uh, statistical deviations. There was this three sigma event, three standard deviation, rate of change year over year. And what we found particularly interesting was that the employed uh, of our country experienced a 26% increase in the rate of disability versus the general population, which experienced 11%. To put some numbers on this, uh, one, uh, we're being very conservative on our start date the number is probably much higher, but 1.2 million additional Americans in the employed segment of our population uh, left the workforce or got dis didn't leave the work, they got disabled. That is the size of the state of Wyoming and Vermont combined that disappeared from the labor force. So if you're seeing labor shortages all around the country, this might be one of the explanations. My conclusion and our conclusion at Finance Technologies is that the only thing that changed to detrimentally affect the employed versus the much less healthy pop, uh, general population is vaccines and mandates. Um, we're open to discussions to see what could be the possible causes. But what I find interesting and curious is this excess mortality continues, the disabilities continue, and our health authorities have no interest in uh, trying to figure out what's going on. This should be a national story in my mind. And then to, to end, uh, Denmark and the UK have already stopped their vaccination program. Uh, uh, Denmark under 50, uh, they've now said no vaccines for anyone that'd rather you get COVID. The Denmark data, if you look at that, that was a disaster and excess mortality. So they saw something clearly that our US health authorities should be seeing as well. The UK's uh, stopped the vaccination for under 12. So my question, Senator, is why are our health authorities still pushing this vaccine if other countries are backing off? That, that's a good question. Uh, next, we'll have Josh Sterling, a former insurance executive, a former number one ranked Wall Street insurance analyst, InsureTech advisor, and investor, and founder of the Insurance Collaboration to Save Lives. Josh is an undergrad from Cornell and earned his MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he was an R.J. Miller scholar, and he was working with Ed and you know, looked at some other data sets, so why don't you put, uh, add on to what Ed has to say. Uh, thank you, Senator. So since early in the year, I've been uh, working with a group called the Insurance Collaboration to Save Lives, and it's a group of senior insurance executives from the life and health insurance industry who are very concerned about the rising mortality and morbidity, um, you know, both from internal data that they've been watching as well as the external data. And so as a bunch of, you know, actuaries and data-driven people, we've generated hundreds and hundreds of charts, looked at this every way from Sunday. Uh, but ultimately, you know, and of course what you imagine we've seen is things like rising morbidity from lots of different types of harm, from like blood clotting, uh, you know, female fertility issues, 
you know, obviously, uh, you know, lots of lots of nervous system and uh, you know, cardiac and multi-system problems. Lots of different signals. And to Ed's point, um, also very clearly, continuing adverse mor uh, excess mortality. If you just look at the weekly numbers from the CDC, um, you see something like 10 to 15 percent excess mortality continuing as recently as the past few months. And so, you know, that's very troubling. But if we roll to the next slide. You know, the senator asked, asked us to show just the one chart that tells the entire story. This is that chart. Um, the UK government, until this summer, was reporting a data series that showed the relative mortality rates for the vaccinated and unvaccinated by the number of doses of the vaccine. We've done what we think is really professional work with this, and we think it simplifies down to a conclusion that says that through the last available data set, the people in the UK who took the vaccine have a 26% higher mortality rate. The people who are under the age of 50 who took the vaccine now have a 49% higher mortality rate. And worst of all, um, the people who only took one dose of the vaccine have approximately 145% dose uh, worse mortality rate. That last data point is on its face confusing especially because it seems like there's more and more, t you know, it just doesn't make a ton of sense, unless you realize that what's going on with this really is that the people who took the dose, the first dose, in the United States, that's about 12% of people, but then stopped taking any other doses. Those people, through their choice to stop, disproportionately the ones who were harmed. And so what we're concluding is that if you happen to be an unlucky person who was in some fashion even moderately injured, minor, with a minor injury, you decided not to continue, the statistics, the best statistics we have, show that you're going to have, at least through today, maybe it'll get better, you know, and obviously we're all here because we're hoping to find treatments and cures and screening and interventions, you know, but if that doesn't happen, we have to assume that this is now the baseline there's going to be 145% higher mortality. And if you were to take these numbers and just apply them to the United States, that ends up being something like 600,000 excess deaths per year in the United States from this higher vaccine-induced mortality. And, you know, that's, that's obviously a really concerning thing, and we're, I'm, I'm happy you called the meeting, and I, I'm, I know we all hoping to get to answers. Thank you. And, and again, I thought that statistic on single dose was pretty interesting because, let's face it, every, just about everybody knows somebody who took, uh, you know, the first dose and had a severe action, they're not going to take the second one. So, first of all, thank you all, first panel. You stayed on time, and you set a good example for everybody else, not to put too much pressure on you. Uh, but now, now we're going to turn to, so that, that was kind of the setup. You know, all these different safety signals that I think are just, oh, I'm sorry, we have one left. But that's what I got. Okay, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long, uh, also is going to talk about what she has found inside the information system within the Department of Defense. So, Dr. Long. Thank you, Senator. The information I am presenting is made as protective whistleblower communication under Title 10 U.S.C. 1034. My opinions are my own and they do not reflect that of the United States Army, the DOD, or any entity thereof. They do, however, reflect the reality of the vaccine-injured service members and the concerns of the unvaccinated across the DOD. Senator, in January 2021, I came before you as a military whistleblower reporting catastrophic increases in illnesses and injuries across the DOD being reported in the DMED. These concerns were brushed aside by the DOD as data glitches in our defense medical surveillance system. 
it was reported that this computer glitch was fixed. Per your request for an update, last night I ran a query in the Defense Medical Epidemiology database looking at all illnesses and injuries across the DOD. As you can see, um, the total number of reportable events went from 110,000 in 2020 to over 200,000 in 2022. The vaccine was introduced into the military in January of 2021. A reportable event is defined um, as an inherent significant threat to public health and military operations. A reportable event um, represents severe life-threatening clinical manifestations that disrupt military training and deployment. These numbers are consistent with the over um, statistically significant rise in vaccine adverse event reports on service members as provided to me by the CDC, showing 34,000 reports and 119 deaths. Compare this, Senator, to the 93 deaths of service members that were attributed to SARS-CoV-2 infection. Clearly the risk of the vaccine has already outweighed the benefit. Military vaccine mandates are dangerous and deadly, and they must stop immediately. Thank you, Dr. Long. So again, we see these safety signals, and we are asking, why are they being ignored? They shouldn't be ignored. We got a lot of questions. So now, now we're going to turn to really the, the, the guts of uh, you know, what this panel is about. You know, the vaccine, uh, what it is, you know, how it works, and, and uh, how it causes injury. But we need to first start by talking about what the coronavirus is, what, what we've learned about it, what we know about it, how it works, you know, how it does its damage. We're going to first call on uh, Dr. Ryan Long, uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, is a Mayo Clinic trained board certified anatomic and clinical pathologist with subspecialty fellowship training in dermatology, this is too hard to read, and PhD training in immunology and virology. He has been the CEO medical director of a full service independent diagnostic medical lab for almost two decades and has diagnosed over 500,000 in his career. And now you understand why I didn't go into medicine because I can't pronounce this stuff. Dr. Cole. Thank you, Senator, and it's an honor to be here with you and all my esteemed colleagues. So what's a virus? Well, common colds, um, gastric viruses, we've all lived through it, flu viruses, coronaviruses. Have you had a coronavirus before? Yeah, you have. Most of us have because it causes the common cold every couple of seasons. We'll experience certain types of coronaviruses. Well, what's unique about this one? What, and what is a virus? A virus is a little sequence of genetic material usually wrapped in some proteins, but it needs a host in order to replicate itself. And so ubiquitous in our environment are viruses. Plants get viruses, trees get viruses, your tomato plants that didn't do so well, they get a virus. So the important thing about this particular virus, this SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, is it has a unique characteristic that helps it bind to a receptor in our body. And then your cells become infected, it copies itself, and then it starts causing its damage. Now you can go swimming in Hawaii, which I do recommend, and you can swallow billions of whale viruses while you're swimming, and they'll go right through you. They won't make you sick. Well, why is that? Well, you have to have a certain protein on the surface of a, a virus that's species specific that will infect you. 
Now in the animal kingdom, bats have coronaviruses, pangolins, dogs, cats, pigs, there's a lot of coronaviruses. Now this particular one, the virus itself is a little, little ball and everybody's an expert and corona means crown because it has all these little spikes on the surface of it. That's the crown. Now those spikes, and then inside is its genetic material, that spike, everybody hears about the spike protein, spike protein, spike protein. Other common cold coronaviruses have a spike protein. This one is a little bit different because that spike is made of two parts and then it has a little part in here called a fusion protein furin cleavage site. And everybody's heard about that, but what does that mean? Well, that little special area of the protein helps when it, when it binds to yourself a little scissor called furin, clips it, and now that virus gets pulled into your cell when it attaches to what's called an ACE2 receptor. Now part of it gets pulled into the cell, brings the rest of the virus in, and now it has its heyday, making lots of copies of itself, and then gets spit out from those cells and starts going through your system, copy more, copy more, and you get sick. A unique aspect of this coronavirus compared to other viruses we've experienced is that spike protein gets into circulation. And if you remember in 2020, there was that special appearance of x-rays, you would see ground glass in the lower lungs. SARS-CoV-2, more than anything, inflamed the lining of the blood vessels of the body and then triggered a lot of clotting. And that's not the only thing the spike protein does. When it starts to run willy-nilly through the body, can go to the brain, it can go to the heart, it can go to lots of parts of the body. Now here's the interesting question. In a vaccine program, you wanna pick something within an organism and you say, okay, if I want to develop immunity going forward, let's pick part of that organism and say, okay, if we want a robust immune response to protect us against something in the future, let's pick you know, an inert protein or kill an entire organism, put an irritant in with it, mount an immune response, and ta-da, you have immunity, you get exposed to that again. The problem with coronaviruses, and, and, and I wanna give a comparison. So what was Dr. Fauci's holy grail of vaccines? HIV. Where are we with HIV in a vaccine? 40 years later, we don't have one, why? HIV also has a spike protein. Now it's a different protein, but it always mutates ahead of our efforts. Now any and every virologist worth their salt that understands the family of coronaviruses realize that we don't have coronavirus vaccines for a very simple reason. It's a tricky little bugger. It always mutates as well. And so it has mutated ahead of our vaccinal efforts and it always will. We're playing whack-a-mole with the virus. That's why early treatment was so important, not chasing an always mutating virus with a vaccine. But the most important aspect of this virus in and of itself is that spike protein. And which part of the virus did we choose to focus on with these injections? The spike protein. Which is the most toxic, cell-harming, organ-harming, body-harming, portion of this virus, the spike protein. In retrospect, now we can say, was this a good idea? I think you can answer that question for yourself. That's just a basic overview of this particular virus with which we're working against. Where are we now? Omicron. We're not on Delta. 
We're not on Alpha. This original shot, this Wuhan variant, went extinct in humanity over a year and a half ago, and yet it's still in the gene-based injections. We're giving a portion of a gene to make your body make a toxic protein on the surface of its cell for something that's extinct. Now, what about the Omicron variants, BA4, BA5? Almost gone. We're on BQ, BQ1. Again, we're at that point where it keeps mutating ahead. So those are almost extinct. Now we have this magical bivalent vaccine for a family that always mutates ahead of us. And Omicron is kind of the funny uncle in the family. It has mutated ahead. So the problem is we are taking an approach with an infectious agent that's moving ahead of us constantly. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Uh, next, we'll turn to Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. He is a practicing epidemiologist with more than 40 years of research experience. Dr. Risch received the Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics and Biology from the California Institute of Technology in 1972 and completed medical training at UC San Diego School of Medicine in 1976. And I've asked Dr. Risch to really kind of talk about the epidemiology uh, of the pandemic and uh, you know, st age stratified risk and, and how we just might have overreacted to this. Uh, thank you, Senator. I'm honored to, to be with you on the panel today. I'll keep this brief. Um, a pandemic with relatively low mortality is not managed by counting the cases. It's managed by preventing hospitalization and mortality. And so this slide that you see now shows the breakdown, the distribution of mortality through September of last year, before Omicron, by age group. And you can see that there are almost no bars in the youngest age groups, and that's because there is almost no mortality. And the mortality that exists in those age groups is due to chronic conditions such as obesity, diabetes, chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, immunocompromise. Almost entirely in those age groups, and even in the older age groups, the mortality is among people who have multiple chronic conditions. But the point of this is that when you have such low or non-existent mortality in these low age groups, the potential serious adverse effects of the vaccine will surmount the non-existent mortality of these age groups. And therefore, what we've been told, that everybody has to be vaccinated, that all these approvals for the vaccines that have pushed their way down into the youngest age groups had no reason to be there in the first place because there was no mortality that they were trying to prevent. We already know that the vaccines don't prevent spread, as the CDC said on August 11th. They don't prevent transmission. So the only point of them is for personal protection as treatment, if one wants to choose that. And yet there's no reason to choose that when the mortality from the, the infection is orders of magnitude less than it would be from the vaccine. And that's what this chart shows. So real quick to look at the numbers, standard flu season has what level of mortality compared to, again, you've got 0 to 17.01, 18 to 29.05, 30 to 39.15. What, what's the standard flu season? It's, it's comparable to this. Is that approximately plus or minus? Okay, so kind of, kind of like flu, you know, pretty deadly if you're pretty old or if you have different comorbidities. Correct. Next, I'm going to call on, uh, in combination, Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey uh, to just discuss, you know, based on now what we know about the, the actual virus itself and that spike protein and how it impacted the body, 
you know, what, what could have we done, what did they do in trying to treat people with that disease, you know, treat as opposed to vaccinate. So let's turn it over to, oh, I got to introduce him. Uh, Dr. Paul Merrick is a pioneer in the practice of critical care medicine. He was, has an immeasurable impact on the practice of medicine during his 30-year career with over 500 peer-reviewed journal articles, 80 book chapters, and four critical care books. Dr. Merrick is the second most published critical care physician in the world. Dr. Pierre Corey is an internal medicine pulmonary and critical care specialist, former associate professor and chief of the critical care service, University of Wisconsin, co-founder and chief medical officer of the Frontline Critical Care Alliance, medical director of private telehealth practice dedicated to treating vaccine injury and long haul syndromes, and I, oh, at drpierrecorey.com. There you go. Uh, you guys figure out who you want to start. Yeah, so what, what we knew, um, you know, one of the axioms of medicine is the focus on early treatment it applies to almost every disease model. We know this from heart attacks and strokes. It's something called door to balloon time. Uh, we know about downtimes and cardiac arrest. Cancer is built around the detection of early screening so you can institute treatment early. We knew in this pandemic that it was critical that we found something effective at early treatment. We also, this is not the first, first coronavirus uh, epidemic. We had SARS-CoV-1. There were drugs that were known to be effective. There were clinicians that were using them. And what we found here is we had an entire health system that was telling us to stay home until our lips turned blue and to try nothing. And what's really sad about this is that the only thing they recommended was Tylenol. And currently, we have well over three dozen compounds, many of them, in fact, the majority that are repurposed. And repurposed means that these are drugs that were approved for another indication and were found to have mechanisms that could be applied to a different disease. So there are plenty of drugs that have been shown to have antiviral properties. And they were very quickly identified around the world and widely used, not in this country. And there's a simple reason for that. We live in a health system that is literally structured with incentives to preserve the market for patented, pricey pharmaceutical products. Uh, repurposed drugs are the enemy of the pharmaceutical industry, and we saw their powers and the levers that they used here. And their suppression of early treatment drugs, like I said, this country needed a, a national vitamin D campaign. Everyone should have had their vitamin D levels checked. We should have had a, a replenishment protocol for everybody. That would have been one of the most simplest and safest and one of the most potent ways to protect ourselves from morbidity and mortality. We did not do that. We, we waited a year into this at least until we rushed through under emergency authorization some pricey uh, uh, antivirals all the while while suppressing really effective, widely available, very safe track records of medicines like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and fluvoxamine, and I can go on and on. And what I will say, just to remark at how absurd this is, is that 30% of the planet lives in a country where ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine is not only in the national guideline, but it's widely used. But you do not see that in the United States or in any advanced health economies. You look at Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, in all of those advanced health economies where the pharmaceutical industry runs supreme, you see the suppression of early treatment drugs. And I will tell you, you know, I, my colleague is to my side. He was an early advocate proponent of using hydroxychloroquine. We know that drug works in this disease. Had that been adopted at that time, many hundreds of thousands of Americans would still be alive today. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Johnson, thanks, Pierre. I just need to emphasize that we knew in 2020, we knew in March of 2020, there were a whole host of effective drugs 
which could have stopped this pandemic. If we had broadly, widely adopted early treatment, because as Pierre said, the success is early treatment. The treatment now is early treatment. Do not wait until you cannot breathe and go to hospital. In March of 2020, we knew about early interventions, early treatments. If this was adopted in March and April of 2020, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. We would not be sitting where we are today. We would have abolished this, this pandemic. It's as simple as that. And it's an outrage, a moral, ethical, medical outrage that we were not allowed to treat patients with safe, effective, cheap, repurposed drugs in favor of big pharmaceutical control. And, you know, that's the story, and that's why we are where we are today. So I would ask people to go to our second opinion video and listen to Dr. Merrick's testimony in terms of what his hospital did to him. I do want to ask a question. Because you're talking about repurpose. I mean, there were drugs that were on label to treat whether it's uh, clotting or whether it's inflammation that doctors also weren't allowed to use, correct? I mean, can you quick speak to that? And also, I, I, I don't want to lose the opportunity to talk about remdesivir. Again, this is, I, we got time clicking, but. Yeah, so basically, what, you know, the FDA themselves promotes the use of off label drugs. They, in fact, encourage the use of off label. And off labeling is just a, technical point about advertising. These are FDA-approved drugs, which the FDA on their own website promotes. About 40% of drugs, 40% of drugs used in hospitals are used off-label. Dr. McCulloch uses off-label drugs every single day in his career. That's fine if you're treating heart disease, but suddenly if it's coronavirus, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH do not want you to use an off-label drug because it would compete with big pharma. And in my hospital, I was banned or discouraged from using off-label drugs, which we use every day, methylprednisolone, vitamin C. My hospital would not allow me to use vitamin C. We're talking about basic safe drugs. And it's an outrage. What they wanted me to use was remdesivir. Where remdesivir we know, and this is not controversial, we know according to the WHO, remdesivir increases your risk of kidney failure 20-fold. Remdesivir will increase your risk of developing renal failure 20-fold. It increases your risk of dying by about 4%. It has no place in medicine yet the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if you prescribe this toxic medication. So you can see how the hospitals and the healthcare systems are now subservient to industry rather than doing what's best for their patients. And remdesivir is over $3,000 for a course of treatment and they get the 20% kicker. Yes. And, that's so, still, and that's still the standard care, correct? That's still the standard care. We know in terms of hospital spending, the hospitals in this country spent more on remdesivir than any other drug. That's how, that's how much money this country spent on a drug which is toxic and ineffective. Pierre, quickly. Yeah, I just want to say quickly that, you know, there are going to be physicians and others in the medical field who may listen to this. 
And when they hear us talking about the use of effective repurposed drugs, they're going to be thinking that we're promoting drugs that have been proven to be ineffective. And I have to call that out because it's really important we as a society understand this. But for decades now, the high-impact medical journals have been under the control of the pharmaceutical industry. In these last three years, we've seen repeated examples of trials where they manipulated the data and the conduct of the trial to show that their products were effective, and conversely, they manipulated and published trials to try to prove to everyone that safe, effective, repurposed drugs that offered them no profit were ineffective. There is an immense amount of corruption going on in medical publishing and in the conduct of science, and that is why we got here today. That is the root cause of why we are still, we are still discussing these kind of medicines, and I find it disgusting and it is really the proximate cause of immense loss of life. Well, thank you, too. Uh, next, we'll have uh, uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch is an internationally recognized authority on the evaluation of medical evidence concerning contemporary issues in medicine and has published widely. Since the outset of the pandemic, Mr. McCulloch, Dr. McCulloch has been a leader in the medical response to COVID-19 disaster. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection and has extensively commented on the medical response the COVID-19 crisis. I don't think there's been a doctor who's been more persecuted. Uh, I mean, just tragically. Uh, it's outrageous what they've done to Dr. McCulloch. As an example, they've used Dr. McCulloch and others as an example to control the rest of the medical establishment and create a level of fear that's justified because of what they've done to Dr. McCulloch. Now, I've given you like 10 minutes. And I've asked uh, Dr. McCulloch to, to lead the discussion, uh, opened up a little bit with uh, 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 Dr. Cole, talking about could the vaccine possibly driven the vari variants, natural immunity, and asymptomatic spread. So Dr. McCulloch. Thank you, Senator. Uh, can I ask uh, Liz if it changed positions with Paul Alexander? We're going to have Paul step in for this. Thank you very much. I'm trained as an internist, a cardiologist, and an epidemiologist, and I have been completely focused on this crisis since the outset. And when I testified here in the U.S. Senate November 19th of 2020, uh, we had just heard about the COVID-19 vaccines by press release. And myself, Dr. Risch, and Dr. Freed were asked by Senator Johnson, do we have any comments on the vaccine? The answer is no, we had no comments because the vaccine results were presented by press release. And we held back and carefully looked at the data. America had 250,000 deaths due to COVID-19 before the vaccines. Now our CDC says that 10% of those deaths are due to adjudicated COVID-19 pneumonia and its consequences. And that 90% are in fact the infection, but there are contributors. There are other medical problems, two, three, or four medical problems, uh, being elderly, as Dr. Risch points out, obesity, diabetes, heart and lung disease, kidney disease, frailty. So we knew when we were dealing with the first waves of the outbreak, the original Wuhan strain, the ancestral strain, and then our very first big variant wave, alpha, that came through before the vaccines were exposed in our population, before they were introduced. We knew what we were dealing with at that time, and as Dr. American Corey pointed out, early treatment was being advanced, and that was the news that America needed to hear, that we could treat patients and get them through the pandemic 
survey was completed and published this year by Verdkirk and colleagues showing the only Americans who are hospitalized and died were those who received no treatment. Almost 201. Even if someone had received early treatment and they were hospitalized, they were going to survive because they had enough pre-hospital treatment. But since the vaccines have been introduced, we've still been keeping track of hospitalizations and deaths. And we now, since mass vaccination has started, we have amassed 750,000 deaths plus in the United States. And the hospitalizations run 10 to 1. Now, fortunately, the virus has mutated and it has become far less invasive, far less deadly. And we know now today that people are getting second and third infections. And to each person, the second and third and fourth infections become progressively more mild. And that's good news. But my question is for Dr. Alexander, who has spent his whole life studying evidence-based medicine and epidemiology and epidemiologic phenomenon. Is mass vaccination making this worse? Is it driving variants? Well, <clears throat> Dr. McAuliffe, first of all, thanks to Senator Johnson and uh, the Senate, etc., for us here and the company that I'm in. Um, I follow Dr. M Dr. Rich, Dr. Corey, Dr. Marek, etc., and uh, it's tremendous to have this chance. So, the reality is that um, we have studies right now by Subamanian, Kemp, BD, etc., that shows us that the countries in the world that mass vaccinated across all age groups very rapidly, and that's the key, the rapid mass vaccination, those are the nations that have shown us now elevated infections, cases, hospitalizations, ICU, and death. And the data now is very stable and clear that something has happened with these particular gene injections. Some call them vaccines. We continue to call them gene injections. That when you vaccinate a population, you are going to, you're trying to stimulate adaptive immunity. And that means neutralizing antibodies that will eliminate the virus. So you want to stop infection. You want to stop replication. You want to stop transmission. But rapidly, we go to see negative efficacy with these Pfizer and Moderna vaccines particularly, where we are seeing that those who are vaccinated are becoming infected and reinfected repeatedly. So much so that when you use these vaccines now, they are placing the pathogen. And as Dr. Cole said earlier, we are BA4, BA5 subvariant clades. When you place these uh, variants under pressure, natural selection will operate and will select for more infectious variants, so much so that if you kept this bivalent program going, the new booster, you are going to keep this pandemic going for many, many more years. In other words, this vaccine rollout, the way it has been done and the way it is continuing, will keep in variant, variants emerging, one variant after the next, and they're going to be more infectious, and uh, there is a concern among virologists that it could actually could become more potential, lethal and virulent. So yes, um, I have no question, when you look at the data, that the vaccination program, the mass vaccination, into a pandemic, whilst there's tremendous infectious pressure, 
You see, that is the issue that we, that, 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 that those who have conducted this vaccination program have made a catastrophic mistake. You do not load your weapon whilst the enemy is on the battlefield. You vaccinate outside of season. We have vaccinated while this virus is circulating. These vaccines cannot work, will not work. They will fail and are failing. So let me quick ask a question. I've put up behind me a chart that I prepared uh, in, I think, September, October of 2021. Uh, this is when the president was coming out saying this is a pandemic of the unvaxxed. When we were still getting information from Public Health England showing that 63% of their Delta deaths, which was the main variant back then, were from fully vaxxed individuals. But I created this chart, which the, the blue bars are the number of new cases. Yes. And so you can see the pandemic you know, rise toward the tail end of 2020, uh, peak early 2021, then start falling. Yes. So kind, kind of coincidentally with the rollout of the vaccine. Now, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm asking the epidemiologist. I mean, I would, I would expect that with or without the vaccine, uh, it, it was kind of looking like this pandemic was burning itself out. And certainly if the vaccines would have worked, wouldn't have we assumed that the, you know, you would have just had a gradual decline into extinction yes. of, of the pandemic, but that's not what happened. Yeah. So, Senator, in December 10th, 2021, the CDC reported to America that big outbreak, the Omicron outbreak, that was occurring right into mass vaccination, 79% of people with Omicron were fully vaccinated. Yeah, and, and then I'll close by saying, you can only tame a pandemic. You can only get to the end if you get to population herd immunity, but you must cut the chain of transmission. And your graph was a seminal graph to us, because if you look at it, if you look at the down slope, had we not mass vaccinated, it is highly probable that we'd have gotten the population herd immunity across the United States, and that vaccine caused a catastrophic problem right there. Well, that's certainly a theory. So this is a good setup now as we move to the next phase of this, and we're pretty much on time. We're right on time. Thank you. Um, our next speaker will be uh, Dr. Robert Malone. He's an internationally recognized virologist and immunologist, clinical research and regulatory affairs expert, U.S. federal contract proposal and project manager and the original inventor of mRNA delivery and vaccination as technology, DNA vaccination and multiple non-viral DNA and RNA, mRNA platform delivery technologies. That's a mouthful. I've asked Dr. Malone to just give us the history of the mRNA technology development. Why was it developed? Let's, let's make some sense of this uh, and then we'll set up for further discussion about the vaccine. So Dr. Malone. Thank you, Senator. I'll try to be brief. Uh, the <clears throat> original intention of the technology as it was envisioned circa 89-90 was uh, to use mRNA as a drug with the entry a little application for vaccination. It was known very early on that uh, RNA delivery using these positively charged fats in animals was relatively inefficient. And uh, the thesis was that mRNA has a, natural mRNA has a very short half-life, and so if there were adverse events, toxicity associated with the treatment, that would rapidly fade because of the degradation of the mRNA. In terms of the logic for um, 
developing a product like this, uh, the um, strongest uh, justification that I'm aware of within the government is that uh, the cycle time for building vaccines is far too long, up to a decade per product. And um, a good fact is that we're currently on track in the Department of Defense to have vaccines for all of the bioweapons deployed up until the end of World War II by 2050 if all the schedules stay on track. So a full century after the threat manifested. Clearly we need a technology that's more efficient. And the logic underpinning this briefly is that it would be very nice to have a technology platform that could go direct from genetic sequence to product in a very simple, short loop to protect the population. I believe that is the underlying thesis, uh, the reason why the government has pushed this so hard. Um, that's not a justification for the shortcuts they've taken. So that's my brief understanding of uh, the background of the source of the technology and uh, the logic for why it has been aggressively developed um, largely by our intelligence community. Over. Well, just real quick, because in yesterday's discussion, you were talking about the difference between, as this was originally conceived as, I guess, biologic RNA versus now this is synthetic. And there, there's a difference there. Can you explain that? So about a decade after that original work that was done at the Salk Institute in Vical, um, a group, uh, Carrico and Weissman at UPenn came along and attempted to address one of the key problems with the technology, which is that it is very inflammatory, which is kind of a big word saying it's toxic. And uh, they came up with a modification using a newly discovered aspect of molecular biology. That is the substitution of a modified U. RNA contains four bases, AUGC, and a modified U called pseudouridine, which reduces inflammation also causes the RNA to last for a very long time and has a variety of other effects on the biology of the RNA that are still being understood. And so in the original embodiment, we had RNA that would potentially last for a few hours. Um, and that was what was taught to physicians is the um, half-life or lifespan of these injectable products. Um, but with the pseudouridine incorporation with this modification of Carrico and Weissman, we now have clear documentation the product lasts for 60 days or more in human bodies after injection, which has all kinds of implications, including um, that we really have to extend the window of time where we assess potential risk or toxicity associated with the treatment rather than um, inferring that it just is in the body for a short period of time and degrades. I hope I've answered your question. You, you did, and I, let's put a, f a finer point on that. So we were told that this injection would stay in the arm muscle, and it would quickly produce those spike protein that the body would create, create antibodies for, and that mRNA would degrade, and all would be well. And there wouldn't be any kind of long-term impact. But it was encapsulated in a nanoparticle that was designed to permeate difficult permeate barriers. So it biodistributed all over the body. We can talk about that later. And the mRNA lasts a whole lot longer than anybody was told. And in particular, technical challenges. And it, <laughs> 
And in particular, much longer than physicians and other healthcare providers were told by the pharmaceutical industry and the U.S. government, including HHS. Over. Okay, thank you. So I want to call up to the table uh, Dr. Janice Jancy Lindsay. Oh, you're there. You weren't there last time or what? Um, Dr. Lindsay is a PhD, uh, is the Director of Toxicology and Molecular Biology for Toxicology Support Services, LLC. She holds a doctorate in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from the University of Texas Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, Houston MD Anderson Cancer Center. Her focus on COVID-19 has been on the molecular pathways that may be involved in reproductive harms and uh, co coagulate pathies caused on, by the genetic vaccines and their expedient, whatever. These are way too big a words for me. As well as understanding molecular mechanisms behind the various treatments of SARS-CoV-2. Sorry, I butchered that. Uh, I asked Dr. Lindsay to really address the potential toxicities of, uh, of the vaccine and, and you know how, how these things work. And I think Dr. Malone may chime in. Dr. Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me, Senator Johnson. I very much appreciate it, as well as being in the company of all these amazing and remarkable scientists and physicians and attorneys. Uh, I, I very much appreciate your work. Uh, so when we think about toxicology and we think about the toxicology of these vaccines, we have to take into consideration all of the parts of the vaccines. The lipid nanoparticle portion, the peg portion, the uh, methylpseudouridine in the mRNA, which allows it to be very stable and persist in the body, which uh, Dr. Cole will go over in a little bit. And um, also the way that, uh, that it is distributed throughout the body. So that's called pharmacokinetics. Where does it go? We were told initially that it would just stay in the arm, but it does not. It ends up being biodistributed throughout the entire body for both Moderna and Pfizer. Now with Moderna, we have the caveat that it is not in the kidney, but it's everywhere else in all the tissues examined. With Pfizer, it really went to every tissue that they examined. Now what are those tissues? The brain, the spleen, the endocrine glands, the bone marrow, the blood, preferentially the ovaries and the testes. Now what happens when gene therapies get to the ovaries and the testes? Well, we just don't know because unfortunately it hasn't been adequately studied. Before I jump into that, again though, I'd like to say that there are many toxicities that are potentiated by these genetic vaccines. Uh, the spike protein can cause endothelial cell damage. This will be gone into detail a little bit later. Massive clotting. I spoke to the CDC ACIP committee about the throm <clears throat> thrombotic potential of these vaccines, as well as their potential to cause immense reproductive harm and potentially sterilize an entire generation. I also spoke about the potential for immune escape, which Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, Alexander just covered. Uh, these genetic vaccines, this type of platform has never been adequately studied. It was not adequately studied. There is no way that we can say at this point that they are safe nor effective. The real thing that we have to worry about right now is what are we potentially putting into the next generation? Since the 2000s, we've remarked on how we need to be careful that if we use gene therapies, that they are not passed on to subsequent generations. It is brought up again and again and again. There are excellent articles on it, one by Dr. Nancy King, one by Dr. Susan Epstein of the FDA, the recombinant DNA advisory board. They both cautioned that if gene therapies got to the testes, 
which many do, that they could be passed on to next generations as inadvertent gene transfer. They both said, we have to study this, we must study this. It was never studied. The truth is that Dr. Corrado Spadafora brought forth that if you just incubate sperm with DNA, which, is, which can be reverse transcribed by transcriptases present, that you can pass that on extra chromosomally without even having to integrate it. That means two ways to pass these on and potentially cause harm. This has not been looked into and it must be looked into. It is absolutely irresponsible to continue any of these shots in our reproductive age kids or younger. Anybody that could possibly pass these on without investigating this and I am demanding now that this be investigated. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay. One, one thing came up yesterday was the fact that this approval process went through approval process went through the vaccine group at the FDA versus the gene therapy group. I can't remember who made that point. Is that you, Dr. Wiseman? Can you just kind of again quickly, briefly, you'll get another chance to talk talk about the difference there and, and as a result, what what was missed in terms of just an overall analysis? Um, yeah, thank you, Senator, and thank you for inviting me once again to this booster second opinion. Um, the, yes. As Dr. Malone has pointed out several times, FDA sort of has different checklists. They have the vaccine checklist and they have another checklist called the, the cell and gene therapy checklist. And for reasons known best to FDA, they decided to use the vaccine checklist. On the gene therapy checklist, it includes, uh, and, and these vaccines do meet the biological definition of gene therapy, it includes a five to 15 year follow-up, particularly for cancers, autoimmune diseases, and, uh, and other uh, uh, neurological and other diseases. Um, to the best that we can determine publicly, FDA have not consulted that part of their uh, uh, structure that deals with cell and, therapy, uh, cell and gene therapy uh, products. So we haven't looked at cancer specifically, and I'll be talking about this a little later. In the package insert, it specifically says that they did not conduct cancer studies, genotoxic studies. They did not conduct them. Uh, to Dr. Lindsay's point about the biodistribution, it, it, it says specifically in other documents that Pfizer did not conduct certain types of studies to look at track where the mRNA and the spike protein goes. They were asked specifically this question at an at a FDA panel meeting in, uh, in June, and the Pfizer response was, well, this is an academic question. It's not very important. Um, any drug, and I'd like to hear Dr. Gortler's uh, answer to this question, any drug that goes through the FDA, it is a fundamental uh, piece of information that we have to know where that drug goes, how long it goes there, wh where does it go, where does, how does it get um, eliminated from the body, that is a fundamental question, and yet Pfizer walks away from it. This is ask Dr. Gortler, yes or no? Okay, thank you. Just, just real quick, they changed the definition of vaccine Correct. Who, who wants quick speak to that? I mean, quickly. Who, who can? Dr. Cole? Uh, thank you, Senator. Yes, and, and this was the sleight of hand. So societally, we have this construct vaccine. And most people in their minds historically think vaccine. Oh, gosh, we've got our childhood vaccines, military vaccines, etc. Vaccine, vaccine. To change the term for injecting a gene into the body that's never been used uh, ever before, this platform, a lipid nanoparticle plus a gene, is not a vaccine. 
It is a mechanism to make your body a factory for a foreign protein. The human cells in the human body are meant to make human proteins. So this is a, a grand experiment to leap forward making your body a factory for a foreign and now known to be toxic protein. They changed it and it was a sleight of hand in the, in the CDC's definition of a vaccine, something that will, quote, stimulate the immune response. Well, that would include dirt. That would include vitamin D. That would include licking the kitty cat, you know, whatever. That stimulates an immune response. So they, they made it such a broad definition compared to preventing or, or causing immunity to prevent you acquiring that disease in the future. It was a, a subtle word game. D David, do you have the exact definition where it went from to where, what it became? Well, I, uh, Ryan, I think that was a very eloquent explanation. Um, but but I, 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 wanna, I wanted to distill it down to like the core. I know I haven't been introduced myself yet. Uh, we have the it's a, we have the inventor of mRNA vaccines sitting sitting right to my right here. Robert, is this a vaccine or is it a gene therapy? As I've said repeatedly, it came out of a gene therapy research program. These and the adenoviral vectors are absolutely gene therapy technology applied for the purpose of eliciting an immune response. Okay. I don't care what the FDA says. There's your answer right there. Okay, thanks. But let's, let's move on. Uh, we're staying pretty good on time. I appreciate that. So now I'm going to have uh, Dr. M Peter McCulloch lead, lead a uh, uh, discussion on how the vaccine actually works. And Dr. McCulloch, I'll ask you to call on people, and I'll, you can do the introductions as you call on them. Virtually every American has taken a vaccine in the course of their life. The <coughs> compliance with the CDC vaccine schedule is nearly 100%. It's, uh, there are always some who, uh, for a variety of reasons, elect not to take vaccines, and, and uh, that's within their right and their purview to do that. Um, it's important to know that the vaccines fall into categories of an antigen-based vaccine, a, a killed virus vaccine, a live attenuated viral vaccine, and then there's some antigen-based vaccines for uh, uh, bacterial uh, diseases as well. The COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna being messenger RNA, Janssen being adenoviral DNA, and now the Novavax vaccine being an antigen of the spike protein, none of them provide any evidence of immunity in the nose where the virus is carried and transmitted. Papers by Chow, by Acharian, uh, Rhymerisma, and Acorsi measure the PCR uh, viral load determined from PCR in those who have taken the vaccines and those who didn't, and there was no difference. These vaccines have no support for reducing transmission of the infection. Their only hope was to reduce the risks of severe disease. There has been no randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that has ever shown any one of these COVID-19 vaccines reduce hospitalization and death as a primary endpoint. That's the standard that we hold manufacturers to in clinical trials. The current consent form says the only benefit of taking a COVID-19 vaccine Specifically, it says that the vaccines have been, past tense, shown to reduce COVID-19 infection, the incidence of infection, period. 
I'll pass it off to David Wiseman. How do these vaccines work? So let's introduce Dr. Wiseman. Thank you. Dr. Weissman is a PhD research bioscientist with a background in pharmacy, pharmacology, immunology, and experimental pathology. He was one of the top 66 research scientists at Johnson & Johnson, where he headed up the research and development program overseeing clinical and international clinical research, pharmacovigilance, as well as submissions to the FDA for products uh, to prevent post-surgical adhesions. Since 1996, he's run his own uh, research and development consulting firm, helping companies develop drugs, devices, and biologics. Dr. Weissman. Thank you once again, uh, Senator. How do they work? Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to be sitting to the right of the person who was probably much better qualified to give that answer. Um, so with your permission, sir. Um, these, uh, these vaccines contain a genetic sequence, uh, and to use CDC's words, that, could, that instruct your body how to, how to make this thing called the spike protein that we've heard about. The idea behind them is that the spike protein is produced in your body, as we've learned, in an uncontrolled, undefined way, but the spike protein is supposedly expressed, put on the surface on the outside of your cells, so that your immune system can then recognize it as being foreign and, amount, and mount an immune response. That's the simple explanation. So when the, when the spike protein from the vaccines is expressed on the cell surface, and the body recognizes that as not being a natural protein. What happens? Well, the, the, immune, the, immune, system, uh, the immune system kicks in. There's, there's, a, there's a complex system of how uh, certain cells in the, in the immune system uh, pick up that spike protein, take them to certain places, lymph, uh, lymph nodes, uh, and so on, where, uh, where the mechanism goes forth, where lymphocytes, uh, B cells, T cells, uh, are activated to start producing antibodies in the case of B cells, uh, another kind of response, a cellular response in the, in the form of T cells, as well as a memory response that ena enables the body to recall that it saw this antigen uh, uh, much after the event so that if you get exposed to the same antigen uh, down the road, uh, you should be able to respond to it. Does the body destroy the cell that this spike protein is, is expressed from? Yeah, yes, uh, it, yes. It would it would destroy the, it would destroy that cell. Uh, the the problem is if that spike protein is, is expressed in lots of places, you might set up a situation where you can get an autoimmune type of response, and that's a complex uh, question. But it will have it would have to destroy in a sort of a suicide manner, if you will, cells that, 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 that it believes contain the, contain the virus, because the ones that have the, uh, the, the, the spike protein, the cell, the body assumes that it contains the virus, so, so it would so destroy again, them. So I'm, I'm going to use my layman prerogative here. So standard vaccine sets up the body to be able to recognize a pathogen, a virus or whatever, and then when that pathogen appears in the body, not, not attached to a cell, but, you know, the body responds and tries to kill it in the bloodstream or in the nasal passages. This is different in that the, the body is, the cells are actually producing the pathogen, the thing that's toxic, and so the body's immune response goes and attacks those cells, the body cells. Okay, so the pathogen is... You know, all over the body. I mean, is, am I getting that right? Uh, uh, look, uh, we're getting very deep. I don't know how deep you want to go, Senator, so I'm going to let... I'm sure Dr. Malone has given this talk much more than I have, and I would love him to give okay. the explanation. I just want to mention that uh, vaccines as a category is very broad. 
And uh, live attenuated vaccines are absolutely part of the portfolio. And live attenuated vaccines, which is to say a weakened virus, does exactly the same thing. It causes your cells to manufacture a viral protein or a group of viral proteins, and those cells do get attacked and they do elicit an immune response. The short version of how this technology works is that it mimics a natural infection in a way, but it only produces a small part of the virus, um, and that has both a strength and a weakness. You don't have replicating viruses if you were infecting a, a patient with a live attenuated yellow fever vaccine or smallpox vaccine. But um, because you only express, in this case, one protein, you get a very narrow, focused immune response, which is what gives rise to the problem that Paul was talking about. Over. So again, you're, you're as I've read about it, your body kind of missets its immune reaction to this because it's only spike protein rather than the entire coronavirus, and that sets up potentially the, the spread of variants that the body's not particularly good at attacking, correct? Is that in layman's terms describing this? Yeah, and where to tie this in, natural immunity produces a broad-based immune response against all the proteins. This very narrowly defined vaccine product only produces immune response against one highly immunogenic protein, which we have learned the virus can rapidly evolve to escape that type. And if anybody is confused about that, we have the clear evidence that all of the monoclonal antibodies now have been withdrawn against Spike because they're no longer working. The virus has escaped them. Over. The, the best analogy I heard with that, layman's analogy, is you know, the, this vaccine allows your immune system to recognize the nose, mm -hmm. and natural immunity allows your immune system to recognize but, the entire face. I think, that, uh, well, there's a... Well, I just wanted to say quickly in about two sentences, and I think Ryan also is an expert in this. That brings up the issue of the concept of the original antigenic sin, which, whether vaccine or from uh, infection exposure, the first prime, the initial primary exposure that your immune system has uh, imprints or fixates on that particular pathogen lifelong, uh, so that uh, the antibodies, etc., that are recalled is that original prime. And the issue with the vaccine is because it induces you to produce just that spike protein, that's the only look that your immune system has versus natural exposure where your immune system sees the entire viral ball, all of the surface proteins, the glycans, the sugars, including the spike, the nucleocapsid, membrane protein, envelope protein, so that when that virus comes again with natural exposure, your immune system will have an immunological memory that's robust, bulletproof, and lifelong. It's not, the natural immunity uh, is fully in the nasopharynx, where IgA, mucosal immunity, cytotoxic T cells, and the natural immunity conferred is thorough compared to the, the immunity conferred by a vaccine, which is very narrow and very short in duration. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're covering a lot of ground, but very briefly, the big, the big difference between the 
between a conventional vaccine that, that Robert is describing is that if you're exposed to a pathogen, the disease-causing thing, the body sees that, that foreign thing with its recognition things, we'll call them spike proteins, and it will go after that. If, you, if your whole body has now been coerced and hijacked to produce uh, these spike proteins, when you, mount an, uh, when you mount an immune response, it thinks that those cells may be the pathogen. And so that's the big difference here. When you have a, a normal kind of conventional vaccine, it's only in one limited, few limited places, and, 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 the, and the antigen is confined to that area. And that's the, that's the difference that we have to understand. Uncontrolled production of antigen throughout the body. That is the key here that we have to understand. Okay, we're doing a very good job of staying on time here, and we've got to stay on time. Uh, next, I want to move to uh, just basically the, the manufacturing regulatory standards that were lax at best. And to do that, I, I want to turn to Dr. David Gortler. He's a scholar at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., where his work focuses on FDA oversight and accountability. His FDA oversight position is the only one of its kind in any think tank. Dr. Gortler is, a, is trained as both a pharmacologist and pharmacist. He is a former Pfizer investigational medicine research scientist who was later appointed as a professor of pharmacology and biotechnology at the Yale University School of Medicine, where he also served as a faculty appointee at Yale's Center of Bioethics. And thanks for having your resume, things I could pronounce. But get Thank it close you. so we can hear you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I do work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I work under former HHS executive Roger Severino. Um, we, uh, our job there is to have oversight and accountability for uh, HHS and the FDA. Um, that should be a pretty easy job under the normal run of things, but this is far from the normal run of things. Normally, if the FDA followed what it's supposed to followed scientific evidence and did what it's supposed to do there'd be very little accountability and oversight work for me to do this position that i have is the first of its kind for for the exact reason that the fda is 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 not doing what it's supposed to do i'm, I'm disheartened to to see what's going on with with uh, these vaccines or gene therapy as I constantly go back and forth labeling one or the other. But even more upsetting is that I, I, I can't believe that the FDA, where I, I've, I've worked as a career medical officer, that I'm, I'm the only person who's, out of the 20,000 employees or so at the FDA, of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, public health officials, that, that's here speaking out about this. I, I, I don't understand. These people took oaths and I, I don't understand why other people aren't speaking out. In January of 2020, when we were in, still in the throes of a pandemic, which was, which was getting worse, um, th that, that morning I, I was working as the senior advisor to the FDA commissioner on drug safety and FDA science policy. I, I, I was fired by the administration and my position was never replaced. In fact, the FDA commissioner's position was not replaced for an entire year. What I don't understand is, at this point is, and it's, it seems to be a bit of theater, is that there have been over 13 billion doses of this vaccine that's, that's been given worldwide. And there hasn't been a single labeling change to the vaccine 
because there isn't a vaccine label. And Dr. Rihanna Moon will come here later on, and she's going to show you a little bit of theater. She's going to show you what the package insert for this vaccine looks like. I, I, I don't understand how my, my physician colleagues, and especially my pharmacist colleagues, who, uh, who are working uh, and, and, and giving this vaccine, are still continuing to do so when they don't know anything about it. And, and we'll, we'll look at the package insert a, 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 little, a little later on. But if we had a package insert, now would be the time for the package insert to be updated. It, it should be updated to reflect the lack of safety, the lack of efficacy, and specifically there need to be warnings about myocarditis. And others will speak of the same, uh, of exactly what, what has borne out as adverse events. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about manufacturing um, since, and, and the regulatory standards for this compound. And I also want, I, I would like it if, if both physicians and pharmacists who are watching this could pay particular attention to, to, to what I'm saying. Because we don't know what's in, in, in this vaccine in particular. We know what's supposed to be in there. But we don't know exactly what the quality control is. We don't know exactly, we know how much, how much to dose people, whether it's 0.3 milligrams or 0.5 milligrams or where we're giving 100, we're giving 30 microliters or 100 microliters of the vaccine. But what, what, what's the mass? People don't know. What, what's the load? What's the number of cells that are in these vaccines? Nobody knows. What's the half-life? Nobody knows. I don't understand how in good conscience we can still be giving these vaccines at this point for the COVID-19, named after 2019, for a strain of the vaccine that no longer exists. And because there have been safety issues with this, even when we're giving the bivalent vaccine, we're still giving the original vaccine as part of that bivalent vaccine, which has its own separate safety issues. As, as, as Peter, Dr. McCullough will talk about later on, and everyone at this table will talk about their personal experience and what the data has borne out. Thank you, David. Next, I want to turn to uh, Dale Bigtree, who I asked to put together a video. If uh, one of you could just quick give up your seat. Um, somebody? Everyone. I, guess, I guess Paul. Uh, Dale put together a quick little video clip that I think sort of encapsulates what we've been told and of course what we all assumed is happening is uh, Dr. Gortler was talking about didn't happen but Dale why don't you uh, introduce the video. Well we, we live in a time where we're discussing misinformation almost everybody at this table has been claimed to be spreading misinformation. I just wanted to show what we were actually seeing in the news as the official information and sort of just bring up a question that brought about as a journalist looking into this. So we can play the video. Go right ahead. Everyone, everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. We can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Getting vaccinated and getting a booster shot when eligible can save your life and protect you and your family and friends from getting seriously ill and spreading infection. What do you think the probability is? 80%? Personally, I think it's 100%. I think that there's a reduction 
reproduction and transmission. Right. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving um, the virus. If enough people get vaccinated, it actually halts transmission. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. We have all the vaccines we need. We just need our people to take it. A, for their own protection, for the protection of their family, but also to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. I just want to point out that obviously we haven't gotten to the end of this and you know when those statements were being made as a journalist I looked at the emergency use authorization for the vaccine and wanted to see had they achieved the stopping transmission which is our definition of a vaccine for most lay people which is all I am I'm not a medical uh, expert but, but we're supposed to be able to stop the infection therefore we can create herd immunity but when we looked at the emergency use authorization which is right on the screen if you look what it says under transmission this is what was known the moment they were making those statements can I have the next slide please what was known was that the data are um, not there limited to assess the effects of the vaccine against transmission of SARS-CoV-2 they had no idea they had no idea if it would stop the infection, yet they were making those statements on the news. And then just a few weeks ago at the EU, they are having hearings that are very important right now. They, they asked uh, Borla, the head of Pfizer, to come in. He sent someone just underneath him. This is what she had to say when asked about testing of transmission in the trials for the vaccine. I think you'll find this interesting. Plus, plus the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No, uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. I just want to finish up this point by saying that, you know, now the EU is looking at suing to get their money back because of the fraud over this product. We were told that this would stop transmission, and now we find out from the heads of Pfizer that they were never even testing inside the trials whether or not it could stop transmission. Let's be perfectly clear. I come from Hollywood. You can't get on a film set or on a television set without being a PCR tested every single day. We had children in this country that couldn't go into kindergarten without being PCR tested every day. Everyone that works in the workforce that had to go in office needed to be PCR tested each every day or maybe at least once a week. And we are finding now that if you didn't like being PCR tested, the only place you were safe to not be tested 
on whether you could be transmitting the virus was in the trials for Moderna and for Pfizer where they're supposed to be proving they can stop transmission. I think this is one of the most outrageous discoveries and it shows how unbelievably bad these trials, I think, actually were. Thank you very much for your time, Senator Johnson. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Del. Before we move on to uh, a discussion of what tests weren't undertaken, uh, I do want to point out the fact that, that for, I think, the fourth time I invited you know, heads of these or their best representative of the agencies, of the uh, pharm uh, big pharma companies, uh, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Tabak, uh, Dr. Burla, Dr. Sahin, uh, Stephanie Bansell, Dr. Ja, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Califf, Dr. Marks, Dr. Shimabukuro. Now, I understand their reluctance not to step into a public forum, but you know, we had an all-day private event, private meeting, closed door, no press, no recordings. That had been the perfect opportunity here in D.C. where we had these eminently qualified doctors, medical researchers that I think everybody recognizes know their stuff. That had been the perfect opportunity for them to at least send representatives to make their case. They have steadfastly refused to discuss and debate the second opinion. I find that shameful. But right now I want to continue the discussion. I'll have uh, Dr. McCulloch lead this. Uh, again, the regulatory shortfalls, uh, what tests we didn't take. Let's face it, you know, one of the victims or one of the tragedies of this is we have just, because of the FDA, their own actions, CDC, the public, I've certainly lost confidence in them because we just assumed they were doing all these things. We just assumed, I mean, you know, it was about drug safety. You know, the CDC was about gathering information and providing truthful, honest, transparent information to the public. They haven't done that. And so I, I want a discussion now in terms of what should have they done that they didn't do. And I'll have Dr. McCulloch lead that discussion. I'll just start from the clinical perspective. When new products are tested in randomized prospective placebo-controlled trials, they have data safety monitoring boards, uh, critical event committees, and they all are approved by human ethics committees or institutional review boards. That was done for the registrational trials of the COVID-19 vaccines, which were three months in duration. But when the COVID-19 vaccines were introduced into the U.S. population under the emergency use authorization, Americas saw the consent form, which said the vaccines are still investigational or experimental because it was unknown what was going to happen to them in terms of safety. In fact, uh, you've heard today that people were asked to participate in the V-SAFE system and actually enter in what happened to them. Uh, doctors, nurses, and others were uh, uh, made aware that they should enter data into the VAERS system. Uh, that's, a, that's mainly a clinical reporting system for us, and that was done. But what was not done is having a structure of administering a vaccine program. Our FDA, which should be the safety watchdog for America, to protect America from drug safety issues, was actually positioned with the CDC, which is supposed to do outbreak investigation, in vitro diagnostics and data analytics. Those two regulatory bodies were put to one as the sponsors of the vaccine program. So our vaccine program had no policing. It had no independent evaluation 
of safety events once the vaccines rolled out. To make matters worse, our FDA commissioned no safety report. There was no month-by-month report on what was going on with the vaccines uh, in American bodies, and there was no attempt for risk mitigation, meaning every drug introduced will have some safety issue. It always does. The FDA always asks manufacturers to sponsors doctors using the products to participate in risk evaluation and management. That is to do everything we can to be sure the product is safe. Maybe it's the wrong dose, or maybe there's certain patients with medical conditions that just can't tolerate the vaccines. There was no guidance given to doctors when someone has a reaction on the first shot, should they get the second shot or should they not? What about uh, uh, boosters? And then to carry this uh, fully forward to the bivalent boosters, human studies were skipped altogether. This has never been done in the history of our country to skip human studies altogether and just plunge into a program of administering a vaccine that was only tested in animals. So I'll call on Dr. Wiseman to tell us what preclinical studies should have been done in order to head this off before it became a safety disaster. Well, we've covered some of the ground, and again, I'd love to hear Dr. Gortler's view on this. Um, you know, we've listed carcin- the carcinogenicity study and the genotoxicity studies a-, a moment ago, as well as the more, ex- there was limited biodistribution studies that were truncated um, at earlier points. Dr. Lindsay mentioned the lipid nanoparticle distribution study that was truncated at about 48 hours when the levels of the lipid nanoparticles were rising in the ovaries. So those are fundamental studies. Um, I think it's important to know that in a normal clinical development program, as someone's helped develop medical products, it's not uncommon for not all of the preclinical studies to have been completed in the early clinical trial phases. But we're two years into this now. So whatever studies might even conceivably uh, have been sort of uh, delayed, as it were, there's no excuse for that any longer. Um, but, but probably some of the most egregious studies, I think, are, are in the pregnancy and reproductive area. And, and, and I think it's worth, I don't know, I think someone's going to be speaking about that in, in more detail, but I want to highlight um, uh, one thing in particular. The label, to my knowledge, still says something like, I don't have the exact words, something like uh, there's insufficient data to inform as to the risks of the, using the vaccine in pregnancy. Uh, don't quote me the exact words. And yet we all know that the CDC is recommending and strongly recommending, and the FDA is endorsing CDC's recommendation to use this in pregnancy. Um, I, I, I want to point out one thing. One of Pfizer's documents, they said they actually stopped their randomized study in pregnancy, which would have been a very high level of evidence. They stopped their randomized study early. Why? Because the CDC jumped ahead of the gun, made all the recommendations, everyone started using it in pregnancy, and according to Pfizer, there was not enough enrollment to continue the study. It's a self, self-fulfilling prophecy. And then one last point on that, on that issue, CDC initiated two studies um, uh, after the vaccines were authorized, and in the documentation for those studies, CDC says, there is an, uh, despite the fact they've been authorized, there is an urgent need to study this drug in the safety of this drug in pregnancy, and yet they were conducting this study, not telling people there's an urgent need to to study the safety, recommending its use. People were denied uh, informed consent, that was was a part of the study uh, uh, protocol, 
And furthermore, people were likely, in some cases, coerced to take drug in pregnancy because of mandates. So these are the, some of the main issues, Peter. Thank you. Dr. Gorla, Americans have been told the vaccines are safe and effective. You turn on TV, it says the vaccines are safe and effective. HHS, the vaccine manufacturers, are independently advertising the vaccines as being safe and effective. Does safe and effective, does that need to be proven according to the FDA? So yes, it does. Um, that's actually, in some ways, that's the very crux or the core of what the FDA is supposed to do. Just to give, like, I'll give a little bit of history of what the FDA does. So the FDA, the organization which is today known as the FDA was established in 1899 um, under the Pure Food and, I think it was the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, if you go back in time, um, there was not necessarily any truth in labeling. Um, and so you'd have these uh, people in New England, these Puritan women who would never dare touch alcohol, uh, but they'd buy their, their vitamin elixir, um, which would be sold, and whatever ingredients they listed on the outside were not truthful, and it would contain alcohol. Sometimes it would contain opium and other things as well. Um, and so we needed truth in, in labeling, and, and that, that, that office was established by Congress. Um, it wasn't until 1938 uh, that the FDA actually said we have to, um, not only should the labeling be correct, but we have to, these drugs have to be safe, 1938. Push forward till 1962, not only did the drugs have to have the labeling correct, not only did they have to be safe, but they had to have efficacy. They had to do what they were saying. They, they had to show an improvement in the condition they wanted to treat. So the historical standard, uh, Peter, to go back was, it goes back to 1938. And th that's how important, that's how important the safety of a drug is, it, 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 is it dates back many, many decades. In something like this, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that when, when they give a blanket univariate recommendation that everybody gets the vaccine and they don't take any any epidemiological considerations of whether it's a child adult or elderly they say everybody just has to take take a vaccine um they have to consider safety the best way to establish safety is with long-term studies thank you that's what i want to ask how do you establish safety and how could they possibly say this thing is safe? Because there, there's no way they can say these, that they know that over the long term, there's no impact from these vaccines. I mean, how are they able to bypass that? Or how do they bypass that? Well, I think it was through the Emergency Use Act that they, that they did that, and that's deeply problematic. Because just to give an example, let's take a step way back, and let's talk about us as human beings. So, uh, I weigh 180 pounds, my lineage is Polish and French, my last name is German, um, and then Senator, you, you weigh whatever you weigh, your lineage is whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You and I are about 99.9% .9 the same, genetically. However, if you were to take some kind of drug, whatever the drug would be, um, an, an antibiotic, you could take it for a short period of time. It could cure your bacterial infection, and you could, you, you could emerge perfectly healthy. 
I could take the exact same drug with a 99.9% the same uh, genetics and die from the very first dose. And so even when, and of course this becomes something which is an even bigger problem when you come to, when you, you're dealing with Americans. Everybody who comes to America is, is, is trying to escape from somewhere else. They're coming from somewhere else. And so not only do these drugs have to be tested in the long term, they have to be safety tested and efficacy tested in a diverse population. The FDA knows this. This is, this is FDA 101. You know, Dr. McCullough, I know you've talked about repeatedly the, the panels that they didn't impanel on this, uh, the, the experts that they ignored. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I've, I've chaired or been on at least two dozen data safety monitoring boards for emerging drugs, some of which were very promising. And the hopefulness of the sponsors is always there. So when we hear, hear the word safe and effective, I think those are words of hope. When you saw that video and you heard the, the hopeful statements that this was going to stop the problem, you could see the enthusiasm on the faces, and I understand that. But safety always comes first. Safety first. We're so concerned about peanut allergies in our country. There's not a single bag of peanuts on any plane flying over the skies right now. We would never force peanut butter into the mouths of every single kid in the United States. Never. We always have concerns over safety. We always have concerns over allergies. It's been reported today in VAERS that there have been thousands of life-threatening reactions, many of them allergic reactions, and yet to this day the military employers are mandating the vaccines irrespective of allergic reactions, which are clear contraindications. Every drug and every vaccine has contraindications that's determined by the doctor and the patient together in that relationship. This program should have had a data safety monitoring board and a critical event committee looking at every single death and hospitalization coming in quickly, making phone calls, figuring out what happened, ascertaining uh, its relationship to the, uh, the vaccine, assessed on, on the site by the individuals there, that's called the, the site investigators, as well as by an adjudication committee, and then having periodic meetings. And it's my testimony today that this vaccine program would have been stopped February 1st of 2021 because of excess mortality. Um, and as a result, thousands of Americans have died needlessly because of recklessness on the part of our federal agencies. Uh, you know, you mentioned peanuts. You, you, you mentioned a peanut allergy, and I, w I was just reminded of a slightly related story which I'd like to burden everybody with about peanuts. We'll take a break from science for just a moment. So the, the FDA requires at the National Institute of Standards to test the peanut butter we eat for something called aflatoxins, which is a toxin, which is it's a naturally occurring toxin that occurs from decaying vegetable matter. Um, that, uh, but, but if there's too much of it, 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 it it's quite toxic. Um, that, that's, that's done through a form of release testing that they do. We don't have that kind of release testing. Not only do we not have it for our uh, for, for mRNA vaccines, 
we don't have it for any of the drugs that we're getting from places like China and India as well. At one point several years ago, I started the world's first um, analytical pharmacy. I conceptualized the idea and founded, uh, and founded that. I, I was basically doing the job of the FDA. Um, which I wanted to help have open and give a full disclosure to Americans um, of, of what, what, was, what was in their drugs. Um, and we didn't, and, and, and we, we don't have the very simple, we, 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 the FDA is not releasing that information about, uh, about this vaccine in, in uh, particular. We don't, we don't, we don't actually know uh, some of the things that I mentioned before. We don't know the number of lipid nanoparticles per dose. We don't know the number of cells. Um, and, uh, and you'll be very, and pharmacists out there, you'll be very, very disappointed if you look at the package labeling. I, I, I'd encourage my pharmacist colleagues to stop buying, stop looking around on Amazon for garbage you don't need. I'd encourage everybody to log out of social media and do some actual reading about this and not get their talking points from mainstream news. Thank you. So, so I, come, I come from manufacturing. I do want to, we've got six minutes left here in this segment. Uh, somebody speak to the complexity of manufacturing this mRNA in billions of doses. And again, when we're not really testing for consistency in the lots, I mean, I wrote a letter to the FDA about uh, people looking at VAERS, again, an imperfect system, about lot-to-lot -lot variation and a high percentage of the vaccine injuries associated with a small number of lots. I would say I didn't get a very adequate response from that. But can somebody just talk about the basic complexity of trying to produce this, even in a small lot, small batch versus for billions of people. Anybody want to volunteer? Dr. Malone? Okay, so this was one of the sections we were going to cover earlier. Um, these self-assembling lipid nanoparticles, which is a fancy way of saying they come together naturally to form these particles because the RNA is negatively charged and the fats in the particles are positively charged. And they just associate with each other, self-assemble. They have many, many chemical components. These are very complex pharmaceutical products. And they have aspects like the polyethylene glycol that are designed to be on the particle and then fall off as soon as it gets injected. So very complex products requiring novel manufacturing technologies like microfluidization that have never really been deployed at this scale in the past. They're being manufactured at many, many sites all over the world. There seems to be little um, process or release control. And um, in my response would be to the agency having received that letter would be to ask for the data demonstrating that the lots are consistent because the data from how bad is my batch, this aggregate that draws from various databases to demonstrate that there is significant variance in the toxicity from lot to lot, such as the lot that I received with my second dose that almost killed me as I developed hypertension with systolic to 230. Um, that, there's some reason why some lots are associated with many more deaths 
and much more disease than others. And so I, my suggestion, uh, respectfully, Senator, is in receiving this letter, the response might be, <coughs> show me the data. So, so it won't surprise anybody in this audience that the government agency charged with collecting data and providing it transparently to the public doesn't give up their data. Now, David, do you want to speak a little bit to the point I was just asking about manufacturing complexity? Uh, sure. So I want to start off by saying that this is something which could be quite easily characterized by the FDA in an effort for public health transparency. The FDA has uh, the Office of Pharmaceutical Quality, about 1,300 employees out of the 20,000 or so that are at the agency. It's being run by a pharmacist who has the ability and the staff, and the FDA overall has about half of its budget is discretionary, amounting to over $3 billion. This is something they could do quite easily. They could not only characterize the components and release them to the public of, of this vaccine, uh, but they could do it for they could do it for all drugs. They could do it for all of the products that they regulate, uh, which go into human beings. But but for one reason or another, they're, uh, they're they're reticent to do so. I'm of the opinion that all of that stuff should be very prominently published. Likewise, if if there's one company we find overseas that's doing that's producing a drug that's uh, that, that, that isn't meeting the FDA's strictest standards, perhaps they make other products. And then even if one could hypothesize, if, you know, if, if, if one, especially because I, I think somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the stuff that comes from all pharmacies in the United States uh, comes from either India or China, with an emphasis on China, if, if maybe, if one were to be a vile dictator, and they wanted to take down a country, that would be w one heck of an awful way to do it, is to start adultering the drugs, give, give low, uh, mislabeling drugs so they contain toxins. In, in fact, that, that, that analytical pharmacy, which I conceptualized, actually did, started doing exactly that. They started doing, uh, the, uh, it, it was the nitrosamines and NDMA found in Valsartan and other ARBs, um, as, as well as a Zantac recall. That was something that originated not from the FDA's Office of Pharmaceutical Quality, but from a, a, a private uh, lab on, on a shoestring budget. Okay, we're, uh, we've got to move on to the, the, really the final segment here, which is how can, or how could these vaccines possibly cause injury? Okay, and I, I want to start well, first of all, talking to individuals who have been vaccine injured, and you know, again, briefly, unfortunately, uh, describe what you've gone through—not not in great detail—but you know, how many of them, you know, in your groups, how many are you, you know, and you know, the, the abandonment again. I won't put words in your mouth, but just talk about that. We'll start with, with redress, and then we'll go to to Joel. Thank you, Senator. Um, my name is Brianne Dressen. I'm a previously healthy mother of two young kids and uh, a preschool teacher. My life before my vaccine was beautiful. Sorry, it's hard to remember the worst parts of my life. Um, unfortunately, I'm not alone. I participated in a clinical trial for AstraZeneca. 
and now I suffer from a severe debilitating form of neuropathy that will progress until I am essentially left in a care home. I'm not alone in my struggle. Unfortunately, there are other clinical trial participants that are dealing with the same thing. There's Olivia Tessinara, who's a Moderna clinical trial participant, who now has severe and rare T-cell lymphoma. She's coded as moderate lymphadenopathy in the report. I'm not even in my report. Augusto Rue with Pfizer, severe um, and lasting neurocardiogenic side effects. He's coded as fully recovered. Maddie DeGarry, a 12-year-old, confined to a wheelchair, feeding tube, coded as a stomach ache. This progressed on to the public rollout. One in three reports and bears. We don't know what's happening to these reports. Where are these people? We found over 20,000 COVID vaccine injured in just a short year, with Joel and I founding an organization that's dedicated to advocating for the healing of these people who are suffering. The NIH knows they flew us out, they researched us. They also help people with secret protocols that the public still does not know about. I know because I was one of those people that was given those protocols that Joel and I now use daily to help prevent severe disease from happening to people who are newly injured. The FDA also knows all of this. And when we've talked to them about these secrets, the response that we got was, there are no secrets here. There is one word that summarizes what's happening to the COVID vaccine injured. There is one word to describe us, and it is ghost. But there is one very important message I would like to selfishly share for the injured. I want them to know that the fight is just now heating up, and please stay with us. Do not give the drug companies one more ounce or one more minute of your life than they already have taken. If you do that, they win. Thank you. Dr. Joel Walsky. Let me just quick induce uh, Dr. Walsky. He's an orthopedic surgeon from Mequon, Wisconsin. He grew up in the Milwaukee area. He attended Marquette University for his undergraduate education. He then obtained his medical degree at the University of Wisconsin. He completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So Dr. Walscott. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Prior to 2021, I was an orthopedic surgeon specializing in joint replacement with a large successful practice. I averaged 6,000 patient visits per year and performed in the area of 800 surgical procedures per year. I had a passion for my job and was dedicated to my patients. I received my one and only Moderna injection on December 30th of 2022. Within one week after my Moderna shot, I began to have numbness and weakness in my legs. This was quickly followed by balance problems and back pain. I remember vividly the day when I was in an exam room and was physically unable to rise from a seated position while talking to a patient. I pushed myself pushed myself up to an upright position, my legs failed me, and I fell. Knowing how to manipulate the healthcare system, I quickly received the diagnosis of transverse myelitis. This involves an injury to my thoracic spinal cord. I also had an extensive workup to rule out other sources of my condition besides the Moderna shot. No other source could be found. I am now permanently disabled. While my permanent disability has been professionally devastating, I am passionate about, passionate about turning my negative reaction into positive action.
I am now co-chair of REACT 19, which is a nonprofit, science-based, non-political organization that is focused on giving the COVID-19 vaccine-injured hope and support. This advocacy organization unfortunately represents over 20,000 COVID-19 vaccine-injured people here in the United States. We have a CARE fund which provides financial grants to injured people for uncovered medical expenses. We are developing a medical provider and mental health provider network cons consisting of what we call as vaccine-injured-friendly providers. We have social media-based support groups. We also have created an advocacy network where newly diagnosed individuals that are injured can be assigned a nurse or social worker to assist them. In essence, we are providing the care that the federal agencies, the healthcare organizations, and their medical providers should be doing. Let me be clear for those that are, for those, excuse me, that, of you that are considering a COVID shot. If you have an adverse event after your shot, you are on your own. If you are a parent considering a shot for your child and they have an adverse event, you and your child are on your own. If you can't work, your employer like mine may abandon you. There is little to no financial recourse for you. There is no one to sue. You will likely not be able to find a provider who recognizes and treats COVID-19 vaccine injuries, what they are, how to diagnose you, how to treat you, more importantly. Over 90% of us in the injured in our organization are gaslit originally by their providers. Most are unfortunately diagnosed with a primary psychiatric disorder. There are providers that are knowledgeable about COVID-19 vaccine injuries like the ones with me here today. However, these people represent far less than 1% of the providers here in the United States. You may be shunned by family and friends because you are the objective evidence that the vaccine has real complications. You are the vaccine's dirty little secret. After your adver adverse event, you will likely decide not to vaccinate your children with the COVID shot. And ironically, you'll be called an anti-vaxxer. I urge you to demand informed consent when considering COVID-19 vaccination. That includes understanding the risks, benefits, and options of the shot. Demand this from your provider. If they use the simple term, quote, safe and effective, I urge you to run, not walk, and find a new provider and educate yourself about the significant risks, limited benefits, and alternatives of the COVID shots. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, I want to thank uh, Senator and Dr. Roger Marshall, who has come here, and he, understanding how short we are in time, uh, would like to take a couple minutes and, and uh, address the, the audience here. Dr. Marshall. Well, thank you, Senator Johnson. You know, leadership is is uh, doing the right thing when it's not popular, and we appreciate your leadership and the people in this room that are feeling the pressure from our, whether it's the AMA or our own colleges, we're all feeling that same pressure. The state medical societies, and certainly that's a pressure that I feel a, as well. It seems like since the first time I heard COVID, everything I was taught in medical school was thrown out the window. 
that we would no longer talk about the risks and benefits of a treatment. I can't think of any new treatment that ever came through my office that, that there weren't some risks to it. And certainly we would, we would t talk about the benefits as well. And there's never been a time in our careers otherwise where if we disagree with the, 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 a certain mantra that we couldn't have that debate. And certainly in this case, a, uh, a, a significant amount, definitely a minority, but yet a significant number of people in this area feel, uh, have concerns about the benefits and the risk profile of, of vaccines. I've read many of your books. I've read many of your articles here, the people in this room before. And as I put all these pieces together, Ron, it's like, so what? So what do you and I do with this going forward? And I think in many instances, in retrospect, I wonder what did they know, they meeting the CDC and IAID, what did they know, when did they know it, and how did they use that to inform the American public? And a lot of the information you all are talking about today was pretty intuitive based upon our past experiences, based upon the science we knew, I think we could have predicted that there'd be some downsides to this vaccine. And early on, the American public was misled. And that's where the injustice is to me. Dr. Malone, I got a question for you here in just a second. So as I think about it, if you're, you know, the, Dr. Fauci, you're leading this country, there is an epidemic that would soon kill an, a million Americans. The advice that you would be given to the American public, and just intuitively, when we talk, first of all, about um, natural immunity, intuitively, you would think natural immunity would have some significance. You, you look at this, this is the COVID virus, uh, three-dimensional, it's got multiple little spikes on it, uh, multiple curves, you think about your own body building an antibody to this whole mechanism, that that would probably have a longer lasting impact than a vaccine that was made just to this spike, right? So would you advise the president, whoever, that, um, that natural immunity would have no, would have little impact on this? And the next piece I would ask about, based upon what I know about the mRNA vaccines, it was probably developed more, maybe think of military, that we would inject some people in a special place with uh, some very intricate bugs there, and it would probably be short-term Im immunity. But we were told if you take the vaccine, you're cured. You'll stop transmitting it. That's what the American, when these, these people, these reporters up here, that's what they were told by the CDC. They're not doing, saying that to be misleading the public. That's what they were led to believe. So, so Dr. Malone, based upon your science that you knew in February, March of 2020, would you have downplayed uh, natural immunity? Would you have promised long lasting immunity from the mRNA vaccine? Uh, I guarantee I would not have promised things that I did not have data for. I would not have substituted hope for data. I would not have uh, deployed um, a, an amazingly powerful uh, and highly coordinated propaganda campaign to compel Americans to accept an unlicensed product on the basis of hope. And I refer, of course, to the quotes from both Deborah Burks and from Rochelle Walensky. Um, this is not acceptable, in my opinion, in terms of a basis for public policy. Uh, 
my, I, I, as you may recall, my story in this outbreak was um, being contacted by a current or former CIA officer on January 4th of 2020 and warned about the risk of the virus. And as I have done with multiple prior outbreaks, I generated a risk assessment. On the basis of that risk assessment, I advised that we proceed with um, focusing on repurposed drugs. Um, I worked with colleagues at Defense Threat Reduction Agency, Ken Biodefense, to identify funding and capture funding for uh, identification and testing of repurposed drugs. And that the reason for that was the long timeline required to produce and demonstrate the safety and effectiveness of a vaccine product. Um, so that's that I, I, I know I can say this is what I would have done because I wrote it and I implemented it. So, Thank so, so, so I hate to be rude to listen. I, I truly appreciate you coming here, Roger. I really do. I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I, I hope maybe I found an ally here. It's been, it has been kind of a lonely road. Um, I, I appreciate your open mind. I appreciate what you've already done in terms of studying. I think everybody in this room, everybody in the audience appreciates that as well. So thank you very much for coming, okay? So now, unfortunately, we have this room for a limited time period. So I want to move on to the next um, segment here, really talking about you know, what clinicians are seeing and then an, a possible explanation for it. And I'll, we'll start with the, uh, Dr. Kurt Mahona. I will ask uh, Dr. Moon to come up to the table as well, and Dr. Thorpe. Um, but Dr. Kurt Malone received his Bachelor of Arts degree with a double major in biology and chemistry from uh, Point Loma Nazarene University and his PhD in cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology from University of California in San Diego. He received his MD from Jefferson Medical College, Manda Cum Laude and AOA, and finished his medical training in pediatric cardiology at US uh, San Diego uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, I've asked these doctors to, again, just anecdotally uh, put some meat in the bones of what we heard earlier, just in terms of the, the safety signals that the data was telling us. So, Dr. Malone. Thank you much. Thank you very much, Senator Johnson. I appreciate being here. It's quite an honor. Uh, so, we know from Dr. Rich's data that the risk for children with COVID is exceedingly low. But we now know that there's a real risk from vaccine induced myocarditis. So, let me start with the explanation of what myocarditis is. The word is a combination of muscle, heart, and inflamed. The heart is primarily a muscle, and when it is inflamed, it functions, its function is compromised. Much like when you bruise or strain a muscle, when you strain a leg muscle, your doctor tells you to rest it. The difficulty when the heart has been injured, even if it's minor, it is very difficult to rest it because it still needs to beat 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, and 100,800 times a day. The concentration of my PhD dissertation in cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology was the area of study specifically looking at the cellular mechanisms for the heart muscle to become inflamed. So can the vaccine cause myocarditis or inflame the heart? We now have data from multiple sources. The American Heart Association meetings this year from Dr. Lin, Dr. Wang writing for Cell Research, Dr. Avolio in clinical research, all have elegantly shown that the spike protein, which the current mRNA 
vaccine products ask the body to make are cardiotoxic and cause the heart to be inflamed. Let that sink in. The current public health plan is asking our own body to make a cardiotoxin. The spike protein sets in motion a cascade of events that activates platelets to form clots and inflames the blood vessels lining the heart and the heart muscle itself. So how often does this happen? That answer comes with many caveats because the risk is very much associated with age and gender. Men 14 to 40 being at the highest risk. But most alarming was a recent study from Thailand that watched and tested adolescents before and after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. They found that two, uh, of the 202 adolescent boys that they were studied, five of 202, or 2.4%, demonstrated myocardial image, uh, sorry, injury. And two of the 202 had a 1% or 1% had irritation of, of the sac around the heart or pericarditis. One in 40 people having their heart inflamed after vaccination is very concerning, especially considering the majority, close to 80% 80, 80 of those serving in our military are males between the age of 18 and 44. You may have heard that the unvaccinated are at higher risk for myocarditis than those who are vaccinated. A large study from the Nordic countries found that not to be true. The paper in JAMA Cardiology by Dr. Lejeune and all showed that the highest risk for myocarditis was in those vaccinated males, 12 to 39. Two shots were worse than one. Moderna was worse than Pfizer, and the Pfizer-Moderna combination was the highest risk of all. What about college students? The recent paper by Hogue and all used CDC estimates to show how many students would be saved from hospitalization from COVID by vaccination compared to studies showing the real risk for myocarditis. What they showed was for a million students going to college that the Pfizer vaccine would save 32 from going to the hospital. The Moderna vaccine would save 23. If you looked at myocarditis, it, the amount of myocarditis you would see by the CDC estimate was 47 for Pfizer and 70 for Moderna. Other studies have showed Pfizer to cause 126 cases of myocarditis per million, and another one by Sharif et al. showed 147, compared to a saving of going to the hospital of 32%. Many of the health of public officials have, have agreed that the vaccines are causing myocarditis, but it's mild. Having spent time with thousands of patients explaining their child's heart pro problem, if your child has to be hospitalized in the ICU with myocarditis, even if I call it a mild case, no parent ever thinks that their child being in a pediatric ICU is mild. Um, so what can we say about the recovery from the effect of the vaccine associated with the spike proteins, cardiotoxins, long-term effect on the heart? That st a study was recently published in Lancet Child and Adolescent Health the, it says the outcomes of at least 90 days since the onset of myocarditis after mRNA COVID vaccination in adolescents and young adults in the USA. And what they found was pretty alarming. What they showed was that if they looked at the echocardiogram and EKG, that those all went back pretty close to baseline in the majority of patients. And that's what you'll often hear. Oh, the EKG was normal. 
oh, the echocardiogram was normal, or the blood test to see if the heart was inflamed, the troponin, it's all back to normal. However, if they dug a little deeper, what they saw was that the, if they looked with a cardiac MRI, one of our most sensitive tests to look for damage to the heart, they saw that in 151 kids who had an M MRI, at 90 days, 81 of them still had damage to their heart, and the damage was of late gadolinium enhancement, which is associated with sudden cardiac death. Um, I am passionate for the health of our children. I'm also passionate for young service members that I served for 13 years in the Air Force as a fly surgeon deployed twice to Iraq. For our healthy children and the majority of our war, war fighters, the data show that the risk for myocarditis is greater than the benefit of the vaccine products. As a physician who is bound to do no harm, my opinion is that we should not mandate harm. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Milhone. Again, we've got this room for just a set period. Uh, I, I do want to go to some doctors with just some anecdotal clinical evidence, okay? And I want to keep that brief because I do want to have time to at least theorize about what how the vaccine could cause what you're seeing. So I'd like to go to Dr. Renata Moon, who's a board-certified pediatrician. She graduated from Washington University in St. Louis with degrees in biochemistry and medicine, and has actually practiced clinical pediatrics for over 20 years. In her role as cl clinical associate professor of medicine, Dr. Moon has taught countless medical students and residents in medical education programs. Again, Dr. Moon, if you could talk about what you're seeing clinically now versus prior to the vaccine. Yes, thank you, Senator. I saw probably two or three cases of myocarditis prior to 2021 in my entire career. I've practiced for over 20 years, very experienced, lots of, lots of inpatient care as well as clinic work. What I'm seeing now, and so what I've seen and what I directly know about cases of myocarditis, they've gone very high, it's been very high. There's clearly been a massive increase I would like to, um, if it's okay to show the package. No, you, you've got the props, yeah. So yeah, thank you. I show have the audience uh, what, I, I what a standard package is. Yeah, this is the package insert that Dr. Gortler was referring to, and I, I do think it's important to show. So I've been an advocate of vaccines for my entire career. Um, typically, when you open a box of the vaccine product, there's a vial in it and there's a box, and it has a package insert, and this is an example of one that... Um, it's sealed and, you know, honestly, for the most part, we don't always read it because we've already looked at it and, and so it goes in the box with the, stays in the box. Um, but, so when I, we open this package insert, a typical package insert looks like this. So it has a great deal of information on it in terms of adverse reactions, um, the components of it, uh, and I'll let Dr. Gortler expand on sort of where this comes from in terms of the FDA. Uh, In other words, a lot of information, kind of like your terms of use for your Apple products. That's right. So there's a lot of information, but we do expect to see this because what, what in the world are we being asked to inject into our nation's children? And that's my question. So a few months ago, I, I looked at the package insert. I pulled it from the box of mRNA product. And, you know, it was sealed just like I'm showing you here. I, I unsealed the box that the entire thing came in. And then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is, sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank. On Boom. Both sides. 
And there it is. It says intentionally blank on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like, like that? Why? That's, as, as that's, that's, that's what's passing for informed consent. Right, so how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to say safe and effective, and if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, how am I to give informed consent to patients? We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies, I have, for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong, and um, that is the anecdotal story that I have. Well, first of all, th thank you, Dr. Moon. Uh, next, I want to go to Dr. James Thorpe, an obstetrician gynecologist in St. Louis, Missouri, and is affiliated with uh, SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital, St. Louis. He received his medical degree from Wayne State University School of Medicine, has been in practice for more than 20 years, and Dr. Thorpe, what I ask you to do, we, we, we understand being a gynecologist, how, how sensitive your patient population is, and you know, that, that is our future, all that type of thing. I really want you focusing, because time is short, on what you are seeing clinically in, in your patients and your newborns. Dr. Thorpe. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Thank you, God, for bringing me here to the Senate and giving a voice to my patients. And who are my patients? Well, one of them was sitting right across from me, Ms. Brown, and it's heartbreaking. And she is one of my patients. My patients are women of reproductive age, pregnant women, and preborn babies. And what I've seen in my clinical practice has been a substantial, massive increase, unprecedented in menstrual abnormalities uh, prior to pregnancy, a substantial increase in infertility, a substantial increase in miscarriage, fetal death, and fetal malformation. Um, we published many studies this year, uh, over the last two years. Uh, our latest study, which we've used from VAERS and CDC uh, data, and we compared the COVID-19 vaccines uh, over the last 15, 18 months with those of the influenza vaccine in pregnancy. And what we've seen is catastrophic. It's a danger signal like no others. I don't have time to review all of those problems, but what I will say is that the CDC and the FDA look for a two-fold increase as a danger signal, a two-fold increase. What our study showed was not twofold increases, but 50, 100, or 1,000 increases in menstrual abnormalities, for example, almost 1,200 fold increase compared to the influenza vaccine. How about miscarriage? 58 fold increase in miscarriage from the COVID 19 vaccines compared to that of the influenza vaccine. And I could go on and on. Fetal death. 38-fold increase. This is what I've seen. This is what the data shows. My patients are the rate-limiting factor of future generations of the human race. I want to ask why the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, 
why the American College of OBGYN and why the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, all of whom I've served in a professional capacity in an outstanding fashion my entire career, why they are pushing this lethal vaccine in risking the future of all humanity. That's Thank you, Senator. So, yes or no question. Do you, do you recommend a half a glass of wine to your pregnant patients? No. Um, I, I do want you to very briefly cover, because I know you had done a, uh, a deep dive in peer-reviewed literature on actual case studies on adverse events. What, 1,366? You nailed it. Can you just quick, I mean, quick summarize it, because we need to get... Yes, I will. And, and indeed, uh, published earlier this year, um, a couple articles. Uh, uh, and in that article, I reviewed and studied 1,366 peer-reviewed medical journal publications in the world literature documenting death and destruction after the COVID-19 vaccine. And I can list all those. I categorically, I published them all in a journal. The Gazette of Medical Sciences published. 200 pages of the abstracts of the published literature and compared with other vaccines for a century, all the other vaccines, no comparison. What were the top three adverse events based on those published studies? Yeah, the, um, the, the, top, the top one, no surprise to Dr. McCullough, uh, was cardiac disease. And then we're looking at uh, thrombocytopenia and blood clot. Okay. So, Dr. Long, again, briefly, because we have to get to what could be causing this, t tell us briefly what you've seen in your population of uh, the finest among us, the service members who've been forced to get the vaccine. Uh, again, we, we saw the, the macro, but clinically, what are you seeing in your clinical uh, experience? I've seen three strokes, transit ischemic attacks, massive clot to the spleen and liver, spinal tumors, brain tumors, uh, sarcoidosis lupus, um, cognitive impairment, myocarditis, pericarditis, avascular necrosis of the hip requiring total hip replacement um, without history of trauma or underlying coagulopathy. And I see a, a shocking um, suppression of the immune system that is pervasive in increased liver enzymes. Okay, so with what time we have left, we've got about 30 minutes left. Uh, I want to start first with uh, Dr. Cole. Um, during your initial presentation, I can't remember whether you mentioned this, I know you did yesterday, that uh, one of the mechanisms with the virus is, again, when, it, when you have that cleavage and the virus gets into the cell, it also sloughs off the spike protein. And can, can you talk, so I, I, want to, I want to talk about, you know, what is, we got long COVID, you know, you've got the after effects of having COVID disease, which again, in, in individuals can be deadly, you know, highly serious, uh, but kind of, kind of compare what the virus itself can do, because that, that's an awful lot of excuse here, by the way, is, well, that's just all, it's all long COVID. It's not a vaccine injury, it's long COVID. And again, I'm, I've got an open mind, but can you, can you describe that mechanism and, and why the spike pr protein uh, could be causing all of these things. Thank you, Senator. Yes, so in a, in a natural infection, as Dr. McCullough alluded to, the virus comes in through your eyes, your nose, your throat. You respond to all the proteins on the virus. 
you build a broad immune response to all parts of that virus, and then you make these IgA, secretory IgA antibodies, these little mops, next time you're exposed to a similar virus, you quickly respond to it. But you also form a robust T-cell immune response. That's the Marines of your immune system. Everyone right now sitting here has 30 billion of those T-cells. That's the most important part of immunity, that immediate response. This spike protein, when we inject this gene into the body and start hijacking your cells to make it, these natural killer cells now look at your own cells, they poke a little hole in those cells, and then they throw a little hand grenade in and start blowing them up. So one, that's an autoimmune type attack. This spike protein can go anywhere in the body. I'll show a picture here in a minute beyond this slide, or I could show them now either way. This spike protein can go to, okay, here we have it. So we're talking about myocarditis. On the left-hand side there, in the laboratory, we can do special stains. Now, autopsies have been discouraged by our federal agencies and by Dr. Fauci. You can't find what you don't look for, but a handful of us around the world have been looking. And here on the left, all of that brown is expression of spike protein in the heart cells. If you're developing immunity to a natural infection, you, you want that protein and that reaction where it comes in and the next time that's where you're protected. But we're putting this into the body through the whole system. Now it is hijacking any and every organ it wants to. It's not just that this spike protein is dangerous. The lipid nanoparticle will go anywhere into the body. It was designed to carry chemotherapeutic agents to the brain. You don't want spike protein in your brain. So that is spike protein in the heart, inducing inflammatory reactions. Remember, poking a hole, throwing hand grenades in? That's what your immune cells are now doing to your own cells. Uh, Dr. Hageman, European Journal of Immunology, it's called Antibody-Dependent Cellular Cytotoxicity. Peer-reviewed, published, we know this happens. And I like to say the cells don't lie. When we listen to these people who have gone through vaccine injury and are living these difficult lives because that spike protein went other places. Now the immune system is attacking the body as an enemy. And there are so many mechanisms. I'm not gonna give a pathology lecture, but does spike protein belong in the heart? Does spike protein belong in the brain? Does spike protein belong studying all the walls of the blood vessels, the miles and miles of the blood vessels in your body? No. And then it induces so many inflammatory responses. So in, in a very simple way, that's what's happening. And if I could show the next slide really quickly. The virus itself, when some spike broke off, obviously we knew it caused clotting. That big brown thing in the middle, this is from the lung of an individual that did not live. But see all the brown in the middle of that? This spike protein in the absence of the platelets will still clump and fold proteins. And everybody hears about these, you know, scary, unusual clots. Thankfully, it's not happening to everybody. But are we testing people with clotting disorders before we ask them to get a shot? No. And even if they have a problem after one shot, we're telling them to get another one. We know this causes clotting. That is one big clot in a deceased person. See that little circle down there? That's the lining of the wall of a blood vessel. And all that brown, that whole vessel is lined with deposited spike protein after an injection. 
And I'll segue real quick. The next slide, please. See all those brown dots? That's brain. Does that spike protein? Anybody heard of brain fog after the infection? Sure. What about brain fog after the injections? What about persistent brain fog? or slowing a neurological function. Does this foreign protein with inflammatory and immune system toxicity belong within the neurons of our brain? Thank you. So let me ask the layman's question here. So you get the injection and it was supposed to stay in the muscle, but it's not. So, it's, so this, these nanolipid particles with the encapsulated mRNA are being distributed all over the body. And so let's talk about the heart. So they attach to the heart muscle and they put their little payload in there. And so it's the, the cells of the heart muscle that then produce the spike protein, which then the body's immune system, the T cells, attack. And that's happening over and over again in different areas of the body. Uh, producing different, I guess, outcomes, different symptoms, different pathologies. But that, that's the basic mechanism here. And, that, and again, that's why it was such an important point to make that we were told that it was going to stay in the arm. By the way, the people that developed this knew it wouldn't, correct? Correct. Is there, is there any way that the people that developed this vaccine could credibly think that by encapsulating these, again, this this nanolipid part that is designed to permeate difficult permeate barriers. Plus, they knew it because we know from the FOIA request of the Japanese regulators, they knew that by distribution of the nanolipid particle went all, all over the bodies of mice. They didn't test, didn't test it in human beings, but they tested mice and then kept it secret until a FOIA request. I mean, Dr. Malone, you wanted to? Um, just to clarify, in the literature and in this field, there was a belief system that empirically different chemical structures of the positively charged lipids would cause the particles to selectively target different organs. That was all based on um, rodent research. The history in this field and in gene therapy has been that rodents are a very poor model of humans. Um, but that was the basis for that hope. As you point out, the data from, it's not just the Japanese, we now know um, from all of these documents that have been forcibly disclosed, that uh, the data clearly demonstrated in the animal model that the encoded protein went everywhere. And my friends in the regulatory world, which I consider colleagues, um, will tell you that the norm is that one tests the active product, the active ingredient. And in this case, what the agency allowed the pharmaceutical industry to do was to use data that didn't actually test complexes expressing spike protein. They tested complexes expressing luciferase, a firefly protein, and then they used the least sensitive method to detect the presence of that protein, whole body imaging. Um, and so those shocking images of luciferase being expressed all over in the mouse's body, or the rat's body, are actually a gross underestimate of the distribution of expression, and furthermore, from a regulatory standpoint, at best should have been preliminary data. But again, um, so, so again, should have 
not just focused on luciferase? Should it actually use the spike protein? So the experts, the, the people in the pharmaceutical companies, the regulators looking at this, they should have known that this was going to biodistribute all over the body. And they actually had studies that showed it would loosen the mouse. So they knew that. And even if they didn't, they should have asked the question. Now, now may, may, maybe they didn't know this. What would what, what, what they known about the toxicity of the spike protein? I know I was, I was talking to doctors in October of 2020 who knew that would be toxic to the body. Did our pharmaceutical company uh, CEOs, did, did our regulators understand that as well? Again, this is kind of getting back to Senator Marshall's point. What did they know and when they know it? There was an active campaign to suppress um, anyone, including myself and my colleagues, from saying the words that Spike was a toxin. When I said those words in the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch, I was immediately attacked. Um, and yet the data back then was clearly self-evident. Um, there's one other key thing. When you say back when, when, when was back when? This was uh, fall of 2021, as I recall. Okay, so again, I'm talking to people in fall of 20. Yeah. That so that's, that's basically, I mean, would beside that's, themselves, actually, that his colleagues would have done something yeah. like this. So Senator, the use of the spike protein was based on um, the use of it in preceding vaccine development efforts for MERS and SARS-1. I want to make the point that Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, published in 1992 that beta coronaviruses given in high doses to animals would cause myocarditis. And the pathogenic mechanism was the spike protein. What I'm seeing clinically is now patients have taken the vaccine and they've had COVID and they've taken the vaccine and now it's all mixed and there's multiple exposures. The more exposures there are, in my estimation, there's greater risks of myocarditis and recurrent myocarditis and blood clots and more blood clots. And the FDA and the manufacturers strictly excluded COVID recovered patients from the clinical trials because of that fact. And so to allow them and then ultimately mandate them, people who have recovered from COVID to take the vaccines, we've compounded these side effects greatly. So again, I, again I'm just trying to describe this in layman's terms, okay? so. The vaccine attaches to, for example, the heart cell, and now the body's attacking it. That would cause the inflammation, correct? Is that, is that what caused the myocarditis? It's not just one thing. I mean, it, it is toxic. It's a toxin in multiple. It goes through different receptors. It does it directly. It causes it different cells. Um, the gatekeeper for everything is really the endothelial cell. It starts a whole cascade of inflammation that brings in white cells, a mixed variety. So what we see in autopsy, there we're seeing neutrophils where we would expect only to see lymphocytes. I know this is very complex, but that's what we see. It's a mixed picture. So everything is getting inflamed. And we don't know why one person gets it over another, but way too many people are getting this. We don't see this with the flu vaccine. We don't see anything like this with the flu vaccine. It's quick, because it's you know, again, the fact that mRNA, the, the, the synthetic, it's, it's knocked around the body for quite some time. I mean, could it enter cells or is it inert? Can, can, I, can, I, um, can I reframe this just a little bit? And yes, it appears to be very long lived. The paper that I'd like to cite in that context and about what I'm going to say has a first author of Rolton. Mm -hmm. It was published in Cell 
January 24th, 2022, from a group at Stanford, a fairly large group. So this is the premier journal in one of the premier labs. And the, this is not cell culture based or hypothetical animal research. This is drawing blood and sampling lymph nodes from humans that have received the vaccine. One of the key criticisms that um, folks make, physicians, um, is, well, the virus causes myocarditis. The virus expresses spike protein. What's the difference between the virus and the vaccine? Why should we be seeing more of these problems with the vaccine? Um, as was mentioned by uh, Dr. Lindsay earlier, um, the pharmacokinetics and the um, uh, pharmacodistribution studies were not done. Where it goes, how long it lasts, how much. But this paper that finally came out January 24, 2022, clearly demonstrates that the level of spike protein produced from the vaccine is significantly higher than the levels that are observed with the natural infection. Furthermore, as Peter has spoken about mucosal immunology, um, in the normal infection process of the nasopharynx, your, your face, when you get infected, you have a, a, this infection starts gradually. You have more and more spike gradually building up as the immune system kicks in and, and controls it. In the case, so you have a curve that kind of goes like that. In the case of the vaccine, you have a curve that goes like this. You get a whole lot of protein produced circulating in the body, and then it gradually tapers. It's very different, and it's very much more. So when you see these stains that Ryan's showing you, one of the things they reflect is the levels of spike protein, and spike is a toxin, are significantly higher with the vaccine product than they are with the infection over. So let me quick ask you, why, why did the regulators in Denmark and uh, where else did they, uh, where, where's the other country? UK. UK. Uh, no, they, they actually stopped administering it to people under 30 and under 50. Which, which two countries are that? What, what, what? Germany. 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 So what were they seeing in the data? Too much harm. Just too much harm, and just what Ed, what Ed Dowd was talking about. The, the Moderna, you know, they saw they saw a dose response. If you think about it, it has three times as much um, uh, genetic material in it as we think. That's what it's described well, as. Because I was going to next go to the Moderna with a hundred milliliters versus Pfizer with thirty. Yeah, well, are we, we see, are we it see a difference there clinically. We see it consistently in myocarditis data that it's almost always three times as much. And then, but what also is concerning in the Scandinavian data, which I was sharing with you, is that when you start mixing them, that even went higher. So if you give like we're going to give two, you know, you're going to get a Pfizer and then a Moderna or something like that. That data was more concerning. The, the odds ratios were higher in those. So, and it's important to note that as that was a seminal paper by Dr. Rolkin from Stanford. The real question to ask is when does the body with this synthetic RNA stop making spike protein and when is it eventually fully dissolved? And the know, answer is we don't know. So again, I don't know that, that was one of my later. points at the onset. Nobody has that. There's so much we don't know. And when you don't know a whole lot, don't, don't you exercise some caution? 
Give me that, that. That seems the most, you know, the egregious uh, uh, problem here is the fact that they didn't use caution. They were just, the, the hubris was grotesque here. Senator, if I could add something real, very briefly. I, I know we're, we're running short on time, but I, I, I did notice that there actually is, uh, despite what the Dr. Mooney said, there is actually a label online for this drug now, but it was released in uh, July of this year. But, that, that's, but of course, the majority of the doses that were given by healthcare practitioners were given away before there was ever a, a, a package insert. And then it does have a warning in there for myocarditis, but there's nothing in there where it says it's temporally related, saying, uh, because we, we haven't characterized the half-life. And I have a question for uh, Dr. Malone about the same in just a moment. But normally, if there were a warning, it should say, do not exercise for, and then they would insert a period of time, insert a half-life. But uh, so, so, so Robert, is there a way to calculate the half-life of gene therapy or, or not? Or is it permanently embedded? Um, uh, as, as Dr. Cole was mentioning, this Rolkin paper um, tested the longevity of the RNA in lymph node biopsies from vaccine recipients in the deltoids. So the jab goes here, they put a fine needle in the lymph nodes there, they draw out some cells, they say, is there RNA? They test for 60 days. The RNA signal is still detected at 60 days. They didn't test longer than that. Clearly, the RNA signal drops significantly during those 60 days. Those are the data. Um, so that demonstrates that, yes, sir, um, if this study was done as a pharmacokinetic study using this technology and these methods, one could derive the half-life for both the uh, expressed spike protein and circulation, as these investigators did, and would could derive the half-life of the synthetic RNA. But is that the immunologic data for 60 days, or like the no, presence no. of the spike no, this protein? Is, this is persistent mRNA and persistent spike protein. So th Thank you. Dr. Moon, real quick. Thank you. You know, as a pediatrician, I have to speak to the health of our nation's children. And um, we are being asked to inject this product into our nation's kids who have essentially a 0% risk of harm. Um, when I bring up with families that other reputable countries have banned this, they're stunned. They haven't heard this from our mainstream media. And um, I do think we need to pause for a second and distress how relevant that is. Other nations have banned this product because it's too dangerous for younger people. What are we doing? Well, let's face it. The, the main reason we talked about this yesterday, that the main reason for this event today was, first of all, to provide information that the American public deserves to know, that they're not being told, but anything we could do to prevent further harm. I mean, it's, it's just that simple. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here going, you know, I don't want to scare the you-know-what out of people. I, I don't. I, we, none of us do, okay? But they need to have that information. Dr. Thorpe. I just wanted to point out how important I think uh, comments are. Birth rates all over the world are plummeting, to her point. The other point with regard to the confusion and the masquerading, if you will, of the vaccine effects from COVID-19 itself. I can assure you that in my experience, everybody, including my pregnant woman, I did not see this rise. The rise was not seen until after the vaccine. 
And I have vital statistics of our national, uh, vital statistics to prove that. Sir, yeah. I, I would like to make this point for anyone who is considering getting their children vaccinated. Um, we've had, or end up in a wheelchair like Maddie Gray, and you have no ability to sue the pharmaceutical companies, just like my soldiers. They said it was FDA approved, yet they have not produced any FDA approved vaccines with cons uh, uh, corresponding lot numbers. And it is the lot number off of that vial. It doesn't matter if the EUA product and the FDA approved product have exactly the same ingredients in that vial. It is the lot number that corresponds to either an EUA product or an FDA approved product that gives you the ability to uh, uh, legal recourse. And once this vaccine was put on the childhood uh, vaccine schedule, the pharmaceutical companies have complete and permanent indemnity from legal recourse um, should anything happen to you or your children. And our soldiers have been forced to take an EUA product, even though it is illegal to mandate service members be injected with an EUA product. So, so we have five minutes left. I mean, what I really wanted to do in this segment, and I don't, really don't think it's necessary, is I kind of wanted to explore the, you know, the myocarditis, the clotting, the, you know, what's happening in, in women's health, that type of thing. I, I think we kind of get the gist of why this could be a concern, okay? The, the other two points that, that we wanted to cover, and again, we don't really have time, but I'll, I'll just throw them out there for discussion, is, is the fact that we do need a pretty detailed list of what research needs to be done. I mean, we kind of talked about what should have been done and wasn't, but I mean, now at this point, moving forward, it's like there are things that we need to have the answers on, correct? I mean, there's research that needs to be done. There's data that the CDC, FDA, NIH, they're not talking about just using it at one time use here. They've got big plans for this. So I guess that I think does need to be discussed because it's one of the reasons we're, we're here today saying you know, we need this information so that we can prevent future harm. But we kind of need to understand that. So somebody can, Dr. McCullough. Just quickly, I, I think it has to be said to the pathway to, to prevent any more harm is all the vaccines need to be pulled off the market and withdrawn. That needs to happen immediately. All the vaccine mandates should be dropped immediately. We need requests for applications and immediate funding for vaccine injury centers of excellence across the United States for screening, detection, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and management. Uh, we need a massive shift in our healthcare system towards managing now this large number of vaccine-injured people. What's at stake here is death. And the deaths that were reported by Mr. Dowd and, and others, the deaths on a more probable than not basis that are occurring in someone who have taken a vaccine are due to the vaccine. And the autopsy studies show it. It's alarming to save American lives now. These vaccines need to be pulled off the market. Yeah, that's what should be done, and I agree. mRNA vaccines should be done, but they still. The problem is they still have the regulatory approval for something which no longer, which is extinct. And actually, the FDA is doing the opposite. Um, they're actually using this sort of accelerated pathway 
uh, to, to use some, something called the proposed future framework to, to have accelerated approval of drugs without the sacrosanct um, ability to uh, have long-term safety studies, etc. But even if there were, the FDA will never take it off the market because their logic is it's still effective for the wild-type Corona-19 virus, again, which doesn't exist. First of all, here's, here's one of the main reasons is if they pull it, that's admitting they were wrong and they can't afford to admit they're wrong. Dr. Malone, very quickly. There's a long history of congressionally directed appropriations for research and development. It is within your power and there are established mechanisms to allow you to specifically appropriate for this purpose. Have, have, have you seen how broken our appropriation process is? We'll be witnessing that over the next couple of weeks. Second point, um, second point is um, that there are currently enrolling 50 different clinical trials on other new mRNA vaccines. 200 clinical trials are listed in clinicaltrials.gov for mRNA-based vaccines and medicines. And the structure that's been created under the pathway that was just discussed is that these data that have been generated with this product, which we've all agreed are inadequate, are now being grandfathered and essentially enabling a functional monopoly for Pfizer, Moderna, and BioNTech to deploy this technology for virtually any purpose. Um, and because those data are predicated on what we currently have, and they're grandfathering this in for the new products, it creates a situation where they have a potential permanent monopoly on the application of this technology for the foreseeable future. Over. That's what we're trying to get this information on. Dr. Cole, quickly, 30 seconds. Really quickly. Human cells were meant to make human proteins. A lipid nanoparticle plus a gene sequence, whether it be for coronavirus, influenza, RSV, whatever the virus may be, human cells were meant to make human proteins. The lipid nanoparticles are toxic. Obviously, the spike protein from this is toxic. But we cannot afford to alter the immune system of humanity going forward. This is not a good platform. This is not good science. Thank you. So I seem about ready to pull the plug on this thing. So again, I want to thank everybody for coming here. Uh, I think because we focused this, we did a pretty good job of covering what material I wanted to cover. I mean, there's again, there's so much complexity. There's so much that we could still talk about. But I think we covered this subject. I would ask anybody in the audience, you know, this is going to be available. Uh, please share it broadly, widely. Uh, people need to see this. And again, um, this wasn't meant to disturb people. This wasn't meant to scare people. Um, this was meant to inform people. So I, I would ask, because I've seen, I've seen how those individuals who've been telling the truth have been persecuted, the, the price they had paid. Please do not shoot the messenger. So God bless all of you. Have a very Merry Christmas.
Yeah, yeah. Guys, can we do a group photo here?